So the first question you asked everybody when you first got to the league, who was the first person to bust your ass? First person that got me was Glenn Rice. Dirty Rice. Yeah, right. That man put me on the block. It was like fresh meat that he saw. I was <laughs> I was supposed to be guarding Dell Curry. And then, you know, there was a switch off. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out the league and how, how this game is played. And I was a liability all season long because I'm playing against guys that in college, you stand next to a guy and you act like you got a hand up. He's not going to shoot it. Right. Yeah. You know, you get to the league and you try that. You, Oh, you don't. Res- Dale Curry had the ball up like that. And I was just in front of him. He looked at me. He's like, oh, you ain't going to put your hand up? <laughs> he didn't even bend his leg. Nothing. No load just, up. Just right from there, huh? Right from there. And I was like, and then I looked at the coach and he looked at me like I did something wrong. I was like, I, I obviously <laughs> guard the man. Glenn Rice had that high art. He used to have that ball up high. So you could, it was hard to block his shot or block <laughs> or even adjust yeah. his shot. And he was strong as hell, too. Yeah, I'm telling you, I couldn't <laughs> in front of him. I couldn't deny the ball. And he was going to get it. He's 6'8. He's going to get the ball where he wanted it. When I got to lead, you know, the same, I still said now, uh, good defense, better offense. And you don't realize that till you play in the NBA because you can play perfect defense in the NBA. And the guy is still going to score on you no matter what. Yo, 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 we live on location. It's all Florida today, everybody. Florida, shouty. Florida, Florida, Florida. Me and D. Miles is right here in Orlando, Central Florida City, beautiful. And we got Hall of Famer. Hall of Famer. There I said, Jesus Shuttlesworth. There I said, the top three point maker of all time right now. I'm talking about the first, the original member of Jordan Brand Team. Jesus! He got gay. Ray Allen in the building with us, baby. What's up, man? We appreciate you pulling up on us, man. This is super dope. Man, thank y'all for having me. I've been watching y'all for a long time now. You guys great stuff. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. got to the league, I think this is the, my favorite team you'd have played on. Like, when we first got to the league, you was with the Milwaukee Bucks, and y'all had them hitters on that squad, from Sam Cassell to Big Dog to Tim Thomas, like Anthony Mason. Like, I remember when we got to the league, I felt like that team was the team that could compete with the Lakers in them championships. I feel like, I, I think that one year, y'all beat them, them two games y'all played them. I feel like y'all team was built to play against us. Speak on that team. So we used to call y'all two-point geezers because you, Sam, big dog. Y'all, y'all boys so many never miss. <laughs> I'm talking about like every time that y'all shot, shot the ball, we was like, man, that mug ain't missing. So like, how was that to play with that team and have that much firepower and feel like you can win a championship in the early days? Well, it was unfortunate because we should have stayed together uh, a lot longer, I think. One of our fatal flaws, and you know, God rest his soul, uh, with Anthony Mason, we had such a, a great chemistry. And when we added him to the mix, it disrupted that because we were, we played fast and we played, took the first available shot. And when he came, 
he didn't subscribe to that style of play. It was slowed like it he added somebody different that slowed us down. And then, you know, we prior to that, uh, previous years, it was harmony because and I love the way George Call coached us then because we had, you know, from myself to Glenn to Tim Thomas to Sam to Michael Red. Red uh, high riblets. Red. Yeah. You know, George used to always say it. He was like my weapons, you know. <laughs> He, he would, yeah, but he would, the way he played, like I was the leading scorer on the team, but it wasn't like the offense was geared towards me. You know, everybody had input into the game, uh, you know, the way we yeah, played. Yeah, you're right. You're Similar right. to the way, you know, teams are playing now, but we took everything from threes to twos, the post-ups. And when Darvin Ham came in the game, he had a play. And we all knew it, and we just situated around it. We knew, like, we got threes off offensive rebounds. We knew that we were going to play fast in in transition. And so everybody had, you know, input. There was one game where Tim Tim Thomas maybe had 40 to help us win. I think it was Portland during the year. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Like, we we beat the Lakers twice that year, but then we couldn't get past Philly. They suspended Scott Williams in game seven as we fly to Philly. And like that to me was is one of the the saddest moments for my career. Just remember going back on that because no way should a league determine the outcome of a game by suspending the guy. All he did was elbow uh, AI in a lane and he fell, and they gave him a foul. They upgraded it to a a flagrant or a technical, which suspended Scott for that next game. And and that right there was was a story for us. But we we certainly I think early we set the blueprint for how things are today how teams are mm-hmm. we used to have i remember rick buker was following us all year trying to figure out if we can win this way mm-hmm. it's been proven now you know with golden state and with toronto uh because the, the league certainly has changed take me back to south carolina so you was an air force kid you moved around a lot but but you grew up mostly in south carolina well so i was born in california and then i moved to uh to germany and then from Germany to Oklahoma, from Oklahoma to England, from England to Southern California, and from Southern California to South Carolina. So uh, when I was 13, I moved to South Carolina. I was in eighth grade, and I, I that was from eighth grade on before till I went to UConn. I was in South Carolina, and and I have to say, you know, all that traveling prepared me for ultimately going to college and then playing an NBA. And then having exposure and touching all those different parts of the world, you know, gave me an understanding that, you know, what takes place all around the world is different, not necessarily better, but different. But up until then, so when you're in the military, you know, all the schools that you go to are on base, they're Department of Defense funded. So Mm. they're, they're basically private schools. You had the best teachers, school, food. I got to South Carolina. This was the first school it was funded by the county and it was more poor than I had been used to. And so if it weren't for that environment, I wouldn't be who I am today or where I ended up going throughout my life because, you know, for most of my life on a military basis, everybody was for me, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. rooted for me and uh, there was no real adversity. But when I got to South Carolina, you know, and they dropped me off that first day, you know, that first week I got into a fight almost, mm-hmm. you know, I fought, you know, more regularly than I did up to that point because I was now finding out in my life for the first time what being black in the South meant, mm-hmm. Right. you know, because kids, 
you know, the black kids didn't like me or didn't trust me because I didn't speak like them. And then obviously the white kids stuck to themselves. So I was on an island. The bus came from the military base. So most of the kids on the bus were people that lived around me. But the minute we got dropped off at school, it was like open Greece. Mm. Everybody went their separate ways and they knew who to hang out with and who not to hang out with. So I'm like standing in the middle, like, hey guys, like, uh, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't going down, but basketball, they bridged that gap, but brought everything together. So then once I started playing basketball, all the, the, the kids from school started coming over to the house, playing in the court across the street and all the kids that were in the neighborhood started playing as well. So that's the thing that, that really brought those relationships. And it was like a godsend because if I didn't, play basketball, it would have been hell. Yeah, I mean, it was, but as a 13-year-old kid, you figure it out, you learn, and you figure out who's for you and who's against you. When did you first begin playing ball? Like, was it before and before you got to South Carolina, or was that something you picked up there? Well, I started when I was in California, uh, when, I was, when I was 10. That's when I started playing organized. But uh, what was beautiful about it being in the military is my dad played and, and my mom played. Uh, and, you know, when we were overseas, they, they had uh, every base that we lived on, they had teams. So there was called semi-pro. And so my dad played football and he played basketball. So we went to all their games. Closest I got to playing basketball was sitting in the bleachers trying to find quarters underneath the bleachers when people left. <laughs> right, that, was, right. uh, that was my hustle then. But I was there. I watched them play. You know, I watched them and I cheered them on. And, you know, they would, you know, they won championships in the Air Force and, uh, my mom, you know, dad, they they would travel together. It was similar to high school varsity where, you know, the, the women played and then the men played. So uh, it was a it was a great upbringing because I was around it. There's a saying that, you know, 100 black men say what they see, they will be. And ultimately, um, that's kind of it emanated through who I was as a kid from my parents into me. So. Now you get to an age where my dad's still hooping. He's still going to the gym and we go to the gym with every day. So on Saturdays and Sundays, I was playing with all the grown men every day, you know, and that that's what helped shape me uh, as a young kid. What year did you know that like, man, I'm, I'm one of the country's best. I'm not just only the best in South Carolina. I'm the, one of the best in the country. You know, I don't think I ever got to that realization because uh, South Carolina, I remember I went to Nike camp. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think it was 92 when I was at Nike camp and it was Rasheed, mm -hmm. uh, Steph, that. Uh, Rashard Griffith, like, you know, we, we, Shy was representing you. I'm telling you, <laughs> when I got there, Shy was yeah. so strong. You know, you, you yeah. had Antoine, that day. you had, uh, what's the guy that went to Louisville, Jason uh, Osborne. Uh, like it was so many dudes and I, I'm coming down the South and I'm like, for the first time I'm seeing, you know, Chi-Town, New York, Philly, LA. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm like nowhere on the map, but it was good because my eyes gave me something to realize, like, I, I gotta be better, way better than these kids in South. Set a goal. Yeah. Like, cause I know what's out there and, and mm -hmm. it, it, it didn't scare me as much as some kids would be shocked by it. I was like, it gave me comfort to know that. You know, I, I can play to a level if I want to to get better, but I just can't sit back and think because I'm the best in South Carolina. One of the best. That's good enough. Mm -hmm. And so I knew like I played in a, um, I played in a tournament and Stackhouse was there. This was in, in Myrtle Beach because he's from. Yeah. 
And so the stack was the man. He was like ranked number one in the in the country at the time. And I just knew he was the dude everybody was talking about. And as long as he was there, I knew I had work to do. And I think something like that for our kids to always dangle that carrot over them is what kind of holds them accountable. Like, no, you got some work to do. You know, this little dude right here, now you can see on YouTube and on Instagram, yeah. you see these dudes. Like you, like yo. Let me show you. You, you still. <laughs> let me show you the video. Yeah. Let me show you what Blood did last night in the game. Yeah. You don't want to stand. We well, used to look at stats in the paper. Yeah. Now they can see them on. <laughs> they can yeah, see them like, on TV. You used to hear the streets of Smith and ranks and stuff like that. Yeah, that's all you had. Yeah, it was like you said though. Like when you and I'm from Chicago, so I wasn't when I first got to go to camp. I didn't walk in the door like, yeah, I'm the best from here. Like I came in like. When we get to this, when I went to ABCD camp first, we get there and it's like, you know, you at Princeton and it was like, man, you got Lamar Odom. This is just the camp where T-Mac went from unknown to number one in America and the world. Bruh, you talking about shell shock sitting there looking around like, oh shit, like, okay, like, motherfuckers could hoop. Like, I gotta go, I gotta go work. Like, I ain't even scratching the level of these dudes. It was like, Khalid Alabin, Look, uh, greedy Daniels was a was a was a killer back then. Like, man, you had T Mac, you had Elo. Like, that was the first time I seen Elo play. I said, we go to his court. This man six eight six nine coming down the court, scoop low, dribbling under his knees, and being skipped like an underhand bounce pass or something. But I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is. It was like a whole new world. It was like when I got back to the crib, I was like, okay, yeah, I was weak. <laughs> like I'm weak, bro. Like I gotta get to it. Like, I got a lot of work to do. So that camp definitely did that for me. Yeah, I think what, you know, the exposure is, is so huge because, you know, two things come out of it. You realize that this ain't for you or you see you saw the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I you saw what you want. Yeah, you saw what you want. Like at my night camp, q was the, the man <laughs> at, at my night camp when I went my sophomore year and. I seen Corey McGetty, I seen Jerron Rush and Coleo Young, and like, you know, we in the lunch line and they over there eating McDonald's and all kind of stuff. I'm like, man, they, the they like, yeah, that's the dude. number one, they, number they two, number that's... three player in the world. I'm like, hey, oh, I'm gonna be like, damn. Different phone positives. Different. I'm talking about, man, they was just looking like the man. And it was just like, man, I wanna be at that level with them. Then I'm watching them play, watching Q them play. And, you know, just the competitive edge of that, just, you know, like you say, you, you choose right there whether you want to compete for something, you want to take it serious, like this is just a game to you. But here's the problem. When you see that, because, you know, we all can go back to our class and look at the ones that we, we admired, that we feared, that we revered because they were so nice. But the problem is at that level, those kids, they think that they're on this escalator just going to take them right to where they want to go so they don't have to work mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. But Because what, what they did was they put that fear into all of us. You know, Q, they put that fear into you. So they set a bar for you to say, OK, well, I got to go back and I got to, you know, I this is on my mind. But they, those kids that are good, that are getting all the smoke at that age, they don't have to do anything in their minds, anything more because I'm at the top. All I got to do is just keep killing these kids and then I'm going to end up in college or go straight to the pros and that's the, those are the ones that don't get better. Those are the yeah. ones that end up choosing the wrong school and then all of a sudden you don't hear about them no more. And we, you know, somebody like myself, because I was ranked top 25 in high school, but I didn't have any real, like, 
fanfare or or clout behind my name because I and it didn't matter to me. I was like, I'm gonna go where they're gonna build me, where I can play, where I can have fun. Like, yeah, I wanted to be playing the NBA, but I was thinking about jumping higher and be getting better shooting because now, because I have a kid on my team now, I asked them the other day what their goals were because I want them to put their goals out. Other people hear them. So when other people hear them, they help them accomplish those goals. Mm-hmm. And if you stray from that path, somebody's there to remind you. Remember when you told me this? Well, you're failing mm-hmm. at that. How is it coaching your kids' team? Is that How is that for you? Well, you know, when you go to watch your kids play and you're sitting up in the crowd in the stand and I'm watching them this year and they were horrible, you know, during their season this year. It was like no effort. You know, just doing silly things. I found myself way more emotional in the stand than I wanted. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, I'm just gonna sit here and be cool. And and I was cool for the most part, but I'm looking at my son like, and I'm yelling at him and telling him to do the games because it's like, it's like, dude, go. You know, because he the ball will come up and he wouldn't run. You know, I'm like, run, go get an easy bucket. So, like, a couple of practices, I'd come there and be there after practice, and I work with the kids, and sometimes before the practice, without stepping on their coach's toes. So. When the season ended, they were, you know, the coach asked me, he said, you want to create an AU team? Would you be willing to coach it? And I said, I thought about it. And I said, yeah, yeah, I really would, because there's so much that they need to learn. So my philosophy, you know, behind teaching these kids is to get them to compete, you know, every single practice. You know, that's what I want to see because they're at a private school. So they're they're void of adversity, you know, for the most part. Right. Most of them kids grow up in nice homes. They have swimming pools. They think every kid lives that way. But the three of us, we grew up differently. Exactly. You know, we grew up with so little. And that's what created us to fight and scratch and claw. You know, we were like, I'm not going to starve. You know, right. and now, right. they, yeah, now they don't have that adversity. So when the ball comes off the rim, I got kids on this team that I coach that look at the ball bounce. You know, I try and teach them that, you know, some of the best players in the world were great rebounders and made the Hall of Fame because of it. Yes. Yeah. You know, rebounding is a talent. Yeah. You know, my son has a fire, and I love that so I could work with him. He's gotten better over the last two years, and he continues to get better. But it's trying to get all of them to play at that same level all the time. So every drill I do in practice is about competing. Like, some kids we play against want to do this worse than they want to breathe. Right. Mm-hmm. And these kids don't feel that way. And so trying to give them that that adversity and that conflict in their mind when they play basketball. So they when they go out there, they fight. When you get to doing those things, like my son one time, he turned the ball over. And like I'm this is during the season. So he turns the ball over trying to dribble. His left hand is strong. The guy uh steals and going another direction. He like knocks it back and the ball knocks loose and it rolls to half court. He crawls on all fours. And he beat the guy running to the ball, scooped the ball up, got it and threw it to the guy. And he was hot. Like he was, he turned into hope, but he was so <laughs> mad that he lost the ball. And I told him after the game, I was like, man, look, because I criticized him first on everything he did wrong. And I said, but that play that you made at half court, if any college coach in America saw you make that play, they're going to say, I want that guy on my team. Yeah. He was already pissed off and upset because they lost, they got beat. But then when I said that, I looked in the mirror. And he had a grin on his face because it was something <laughs> that, that stuck with him that he realized, I see you on both both ends. 
I, yeah. I want to let you know when you you made mistakes, but more importantly, I want you to see the work that you're putting in. Really yeah, difference. Yeah, see your accomplishment, what you what you did right. Now, I was telling my son the same thing. Like you're supposed to play. He played key minutes in the game because the other two big men was hurt, and I was like, them four minutes at the end of the game, they needed that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they needed that out of you. Helped the team out. They needed that. If they was playing the right way, they won in foul trouble. You wouldn't even been playing. That's team ball. Yeah, but the other thing too, because we had to learn this the hard way. You know, when it's a blowout either way, whether you're beating somebody by 20 or getting smacked by 20. And when you're a younger coach puts you in a game, you're like, man, this is some bullshit. I don't want to go in a game like yeah. this is where you now have to show the coach that you deserve more minutes. Yeah. That you can run his offense, that you can play defense. And, and, and yeah. far too often kids look at that garbage time as disrespects. You know, they want to yeah. play when everybody else is out there. No, like you got to. You got to get this now. Like, this is my time, uh, my moment. I told my son, it's been a guy been on my team since fourth grade, and he never played, but he was on my team since elementary school, <laughs> like all the way through high school. And he only played in blowouts, but he was committed to the team, good teammate. He played on the team, you know? That's hey, just what it's about. Hey, I'm going to use that, but I'm going to say it was my my team. Is <laughs> <laughs> that because sometimes you need lessons like that to be able to tell them because, you know, yeah. The stories that we have uh, far too often is, you know, how you your parents used to say, when I was your age, you used to, we used to walk to school two miles, three miles. Like, <laughs> like, but trying to take them back down that pathway to show them the adversity that we had, you know, every single day. Because here's the, the, the thing that we, that I see the most of that, that drives me insane. The minutes, the minute practice is over with, or even... During practice, you know, I let them go get some water. You know, these dudes in the middle. Yeah, beginning. they fall. Bingo. Grab they fall. And then you come to. <laughs> the minute, listen, I gave them the water break. They went, y'all know how, Q, you know how it was at DePaul. You, when you get a water break, you go run to the cooler and you grab water, you run back to the court. Like, you don't yeah. go over there and start swapping stories and talking about what you did. Oh, these dudes were sitting on the, they sat down, <laughs> picked their phone up, start. I, I, I blew the whistle. I was like, yo. <laughs> this ain't social hour. Like, you get some water, you come right back. And I'm, Oh, I, man. I was just at Allen Iverson All-American game and gave them a water break from the practice. These guys just ran and all of them grabbed their phone. Bobby got on their ass so bad. Like, man, y'all don't want this. <laughs> y'all can't want this if a water break is phone time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell them, when I played and I had a cell phone, like, everybody knew where I was. So... Y'all know how it was in the locker room. If that mm-hmm. phone rang, that was a fine. Mm-hmm. So when the phone rang, like, man, who the hell is calling me during the meeting? And then everybody was like, that ain't my phone. That ain't me. And that's what I I tell these kids. is like, you got to prioritize. Don't let that phone distract you. And, you know, your bed is your enemy right now. Mm-hmm. You rely on that bed and you want to stay in that bed. That's your enemy. That's what's going to prevent you from you know, maximizing your, your greatest potential and realizing who you really can be. Because sleep is great when you need to heal, but when you got to get up, you got to get up. Right up. I like that. Speaking, speaking of, oh, 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 before you get there, I got to ask him this. I'm trying to figure this out. It's only one explanation how a high school kid that worked at Ryan Steakhouse got the nickname Candyman. <laughs> it it, it could have only been because of Sweet Jump Shot, right? That, that was it. You called it. You called <laughs> you it. Me. Yeah, and when the season started, I was working at Ryan's and I was I washed dishes. So once the season started, 
I could only work one day a night because I had practice and then we had games and that was Wednesday. I worked one night a week on Wednesdays and I made $21. And, you know, Q, $21 as a senior in high school back then, I, I had my lunch money, you know, I hey. put a little gas and a little snack hey. on the petrol. Hey, it's stretch <laughs> on now. That's yeah. 21 stretch for every penny. That's yeah, going stretch on now. I managed the hell out of that $21. <laughs> <laughs> and working for it gave me even greater appreciation for it. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, that, that's what it came from because, you know, my announcer at the time, he said, I wanted to figure out a nickname for you because you just, you know, everything you do is so sweet on the court and your jump shot is sweet. And that's where it ended up coming from, Candyman. So, they rolled that out. We won a state championship that year. And then I tried to hide from it when I got to college because, you know, you want to you want to start over on the whole uh, split. You know, why they call you Cameron? No, don't worry about that. <laughs> you, know, it, you know, it's like like when these kids come from high school into college and they wear all their all-star gear. You know, like this is, you know, look at me. I, you know, I got the McDonald's this and I got. That don't matter no more, young fella. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on, put that to the side. Yeah, this that's what you got to start over. Yeah. Could it be anybody except for UConn? Could somebody else almost get you? Yeah, Alabama, I committed to. Oh. That was my first visit. And I had such a good time. And, you know, the, the coach, uh, the assistant coach pressured me into the commitment, you know, pulled into a parking lot before he dropped me off. And, you know, he he kind of attacked me and said that, you know, I need to make a responsible decision. Alabama is the place. And if I don't choose now, I got other people that will choose by the time you leave here, this spot will be gone. So mm. I said yes to him. Uh, I had a good time. And then when I got back, I had a coach that said, listen, Alabama might be the place for you, but you won't know uh, if you were right or wrong if you don't take these other visits. And mm. so I went to that was the first visit. That was my first visit. Mm. And so then I went to UConn and I was like, man, like <laughs> I, love, I love UConn, but then I knew I love UConn more than I loved Alabama. And one of the differences was Alabama, we had to sneak into the football game. And at UConn, I sat at the 50 yard line. Mm. You know, and think about that. Like they took care of me at UConn. And I said to myself, I was like, I want to be at a school that's oriented towards basketball, not football, where they're going to make sure that they make you. Uh, the top priority budget wise, you know, travel, just the mm -hmm. whole look of the program. And, 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 you know, my third visit was Kentucky just to see. I went to UK. Yeah. And, and I went to UK too. Yeah. Kentucky, Kentucky is like almost, you almost, they almost, the they feel like the league. They're like, like, that's the league. You going there. They got slushy machines. Right they got <laughs> slushy machines. I was like, man, what's going on around here? Listen. <laughs> When when I went to the Midnight Madness and I walk on the court and they start chanting my name and I start looking up, I'm like, who, who, who? they call them talking to me? And I'm sitting there thinking, I was like, oh, no, I ain't that good yet. I ain't that good. Like, you call them, I chant my name. And then got somebody in the crowd, like, y'all got a megaphone. And like, okay, now we got Alan coming in. See, they got the student body and the alumni on the payroll, metaphorically, because they know when a recruit, recruit comes, they let that recruit Yeah, they, let, they like, tell them. We go in for all ours, and, you know, you might be, you know, 75 in the country, but you come to visit Kentucky, we're going to make you feel like you belong here regardless. Double one. <laughs> That's how yeah. it was when I was to Kansas. I don't yeah. know if I ever said this, like, out. Like, when I went to Kansas, I went for, uh, you know, same thing, Midnight Madness. And, man, you walk in, I think it was me, Jeff Boshi. Joe Prisabella and John Jerron Rush all on the same visit. 
Now you imagine going in Allen Falls Fieldhouse on Midnight Madness in the whole building. You know how they do the Rock Chalk Jayhawk. They did the Rock Chalk Jayhawk, but then they said Q Ridge. Boy, I was in that thing like, oh shit. <laughs> like what? Like the whole, I'm talking about, boy, that was one of the craziest chills I ever got. Like that whole building, they did that for all of us. I was like, yo, <laughs> this is crazy. Like that was the one visit that like, if it wasn't for my coach and my parents and everybody telling me, like, listen, when we sat down, like, you're not committing on no visits. I don't care what. You're going to always come home. We're going to collect ourselves. Smart. If it wasn't for that and me agreeing to that and from the outset, I'd have committed on that visit. I remember sitting <laughs> in that office, like, when I was talking to Roy Woods, man, he was like, yeah, so he was trying to figure out how close I mean, I think I told that man I was, like, 98% sure. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm ready. To, I'm just not doing it because I can't do it right now. <laughs> 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 like, I had to get home and collect myself. But, like, you're right. You get to some of that stuff, and it'd be, like, for a 17-year-old kid, it was overwhelming. Boy, hey, Kansas almost, I was, I was this close. I ain't going to lie. Well, it's, it's two things that, that kids have to think about, and I tell – you know, every young person, this, if you can, you know, get away from home. So you, you figure out who you are. It ha you have to work to get home or your parents have to work to get to you. Uh, so you, you have to learn to rely on other people. Uh, but we're, we're asking 17 year old kids to make a decision on where they should be for the rest of their lives. And that, that's the, you know, like I said, he got game. That's the hardest decision you know, or they said it's the hardest decision you're ever going to make in your life because how do you know what's good for you four years down the line or eight to 10 years down the line? Like, you make decisions for the moment, like where your girlfriend is, being close to home, a school that's good that made it to the tournament at that moment. But there's so many more bigger questions at the time, like what is my playing time going to look like? Can I fit in with this group of guys? Is the coach going to be there for a long time? And is he going to push me to be my best? That's the thing about the UConn with Calhoun. He said he was the only one that didn't guarantee me playing time. He said, listen, if, if you work for it, you know, we're going to put you in a situation where you can grow and you can get better and you can achieve some of the goals you want in your life. But we're not going to give you anything. But other coaches told me, well, I'll make you an NBA player. I know that you ain't going to make it. I got to do it. You got to be higher. And so that's the thing that we had to get these young boys to understand, like, don't make these prisoner of the moment decisions, you know, because those decisions don't age well. You know, who you are in 10 years from now is going to be totally different. So one of my biggest regrets is what, what my major was. I majored in communications. Like mm -hmm. I would have truly would have done like architecture, engineering, landscape management, something like that, because I've always appreciated. You know yourself now. Yeah. Yeah. And back then you don't know. And so they do us a disservice because they throw us, throw us in something real fast just to appease us and get us playing. And, you know, just uh, you guys probably don't know this, but like I'm in class right now. Like my, my semester just ended because I got four more classes till I get my degree. And, you know, now I'm seeing, you know, from this angle, you know, how hugely important it is to do something that you like, that you love. So when you get done, you have a degree that you could take and say, you know what, I'm going to start my own company because I have an education in engineering so I can, you know, you know, get further in education. You see how much more you can accomplish. Yeah. It's fascinating now with, with uh, online learning because you can you can take you can right now you can go Phoenix, you know, Southern New Hampshire, you know, DePaul and find a class and get one credit. 
you know, it could be like about saving the environment. Like there's so much information out there. And, and, and here's the thing about us as athletes, we're very knowledgeable on the game of basketball. You know, one of the things that we, the issue that we dealt with over this past year with, uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all these inequities that have taken place in our government with the election. I, I was taking a, a 2020 elections class as the election was happening. Hmm. So very informative. But what happens is, is when this whole thing happened with between us and China, we wanted to only say then that we want to only take basketball questions. You know, we we weren't skilled and, and proven enough to handle that because we didn't have the information. But then the same token, we were telling people that we were more than just basketball players and it's not just shut up and dribble. So mm-hmm. this is where we have to educate ourselves on issues of government, issues of community, issues of world affairs, uh, because we do have involvement in all of those things. And so as a basketball player, we don't get further education. Like, you know, you know, you, you've been on the bus, how many times guys don't read and, and, and aren't getting <laughs> better, but we know the shit out of pick and rolls and, and fast breaks and, and paying and breaking down a game film. But we have to continue to read, pay attention to current events, world events, local events, and, and figure out how that can help us. Because the more you become better as a person, that's when you become a better athlete, you know, because mm-hmm. you can think, you know, you, your, your conflict resolution, it grows. So when you do go through things on the court, you learn how to, to be more diplomatic. You learn when to attack, when to retreat. But that's dealing with a lot of things off the court as well. So you got to practice that stuff. Just like shooting, you got to practice those relationship building situations off the court so they do help you on the court. What do you think about the, the guys like now, like the guys in today's game that's really speaking out more, telling their feelings, telling them about stuff that bothers them about the world or what's going on that we used to do back in the day when we was, you know, playing in the league? Yeah, and and, and that's exactly to the point that I was just saying that they, they have to be educated, yeah. you know, on the subject matter. You know, all I can say is humanity always needs to prevail and people always need to take care of each other. But the most important thing, like as I sit here as a as an NBA player and I get paid a lot of money when I go to play a game of basketball, my job is to come to work every single day and honor the money that has been given to me, support my family, show up for my teammates be an ambassador to the league, to the team, to the city I play on. So at no point can you sit back and say, oh, I don't feel like playing today or too much stuff is going on around the world. I'm not focused on basketball. You know, when you watch a game, when you flip the TV on, one thing that the fans, you know, people who follow the game do not understand, uh, have a grasp of, is what it took for us to get to that moment when TV came on, yeah, you see your favorite team or players run out of that tunnel onto that court. Like, there's so much that goes into it from dealing with family matters to getting treatment, uh, to practicing, to warming up, to, you know, arguments in the locker room, like to mm-hmm. meetings. Like, you know, it, it's so much. But then the minute you run out on the floor, you got to put that aside and go hoop. Straight up. The Big East. You, you, now you at UConn, you in the Big East, and the Big East is hitters. You got AI, Aaron <laughs> Kittle, John Wallace. Like, you got 
got it in. So you, you really got to prove yourself in one of the toughest conferences in college basketball. How was the conference in the Big East in your first year is coming into that type of conference of the history of it? So when, when I left, uh, when I left South Carolina, one of the reasons for me going to Connecticut was because of the Big East. Mm-hmm. Because I had an opportunity to play in all the big cities and play uh, primetime basketball. Big Big East was on Big Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Syracuse, Georgetown, like, man. Yeah, man I watched all y'all games. Yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> all y'all games. Every week after practice, I'm in that job. <laughs> Listen, like, my first Big East game was against Seton Hall, and we played at the Meadowlands. Now, we're about two and a half hours from stores to Seton Hall, but we cross over to George Washington Bridge. So we don't go right into Manhattan in the right. Manhattan. We go over and as a I was an 18-year-old kid and I was looking out the window the whole time at the city that I had never right, right. right lights before. And this to me was like, you know, I'm I'm coming from Yo MTV Raps, uh New <laughs> York Undercover. Like everything yeah. about the city, like all rap at the time was coming from New York. Like right, yeah, you know, yeah. all, I mean, it was crazy. I was looking at this, like that's it right there. And then I put it on Hot 97. I caught it from New Jersey, you know, in my hotel room. And I just looked out the window the whole time. And to me, it gave me the dream to go out and do something more as the opportunities are limitless. Coming from South Carolina, and now I'm in New York City, right? You know, playing my first Biggie's game. Like I'm like, this is what it. This is what your dreams are made of, right? To be able to be in this position. And so the, I, I think coming from that first year at UConn, like Calhoun had us waking up at five thirty in the morning, lifting weights, like running three miles around the campus. Like every Saturday, we had to run this hill. And, you know, we had to run 10 times. It was like a, the hill was like up and down. It was a mile and mm. it was hell. And I had never <laughs> worked this hard before in my life. We had these tests, these lactic acid buildup tests. Like I, I'm doing something, you know, as a kid, I was physically capable, but I was pushing my limits. And, and I loved it because I was doing things that I had never done before. And I was growing, you know, I was growing. And every day was, was a new challenge. The one thing that I said to myself, in my dorm room was I wasn't going to drink and I wasn't going to hang out because this is tough burning in that both ends. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't playing around. And, you know, I had guys that I remember the next day we'd have practice at six in the morning, guys be out drinking and they couldn't hack it. And I'll be over there dunking. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happened was once we got into the season, I remember the first game of the year we played against uh, Towson state in Pennsylvania. And the second game of the year, we played Virginia. And uh, Howard Dean, remember Harold Dean? Yeah. Harold Dean was uh, was a point guard. And, and Harold and I had known each other over the years just, you know, through, through the circuit. And so after the game, we were talking. We beat him by 20. And, you know, I was a leading scorer. That was the first time my name was on Center, As you know, your name's up there and it said, yeah. who led the team to score? And Harold said to me, he's like, man, y'all, he said, y'all are tough. What y'all doing? Like, y'all running and pressing like that? Like, and that was the first time I realized all the work that we put in in preseason was paying off mm-hmm. because these dudes couldn't keep up with us. And we were so conditioned, like we ran hard, like it was drilling, running, running from drill to drill. Like mm-hmm. it was a it was a military mindset. And so once I got into a game every time, I didn't worry about whether or not I could play basketball or whether I was going to be good enough because I was so prepared 
you know, I shot ad nauseum, like, you know, working on running in transition. Like, once I got out there, it was like, throw the ball up. We were gone. Mm-hmm. Scoring in transition, around the basket. So I never, ever questioned my skill because I knew I was putting the work in. How was it for you in 95, 96 in college? You win Big East Player of the Year with all of those different, yeah, AI, Kittles, John Wallace, the name of you. Like, you win Big East Player of the Year. How was that for you that year? You know, when I think back on it, I, I, I'm truly fortunate to say that I won it with that assemblage of talent because – right. You know, you had Felipe Lopez. Mm. You know, you had, yeah. Yeah. Daniel Abrams. Uh, yeah, boy. Yeah. Like, Daniel was getting buckets. Providence was loaded. Uh, you still, don't forget, you had Lawrence Poetry and Moton. Oh, course, yeah. Moton said you, like, you, you know, so guys like that, like, we had, there was so much individual talent, and it made for, you know, especially for fans to watch it made for a, a exciting basketball. But that year, really, you know, between AI and myself, like we went to head to head in a big yeah. tournament. And it was, I'm telling you, it was scary, but fascinating at the same time. Cause I remember coming through uh, down, uh, what street is that? Uh, it's Broadway, I think, in New York, where the garden is on. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing our names up on the marquee, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Ray Allen versus Allen Iverson. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, man, like normally I would panic, but I know what to do here. I know, you know, just just play basketball. Like it's not like I got to give a speech on uh, on rocket science. You know, right. I know how to do what I'm about to do. So sometimes you just got to block it out because, you know, we had Carrie and I had some huge battles. Yeah, we played. We had one game in Connecticut where uh, Big Monday we were supposed to play, but we had a snowstorm. So it got moved to Tuesday. And, you know, they weren't going to put another game on. Everybody wanted to see right, that. Right, yeah, Because yeah. we were, like, one and two in the country at the time. and But they just had they just had a roster. And, and, and I appreciated, you know, Kerry's his skill because that's – one of the, the ideas, and I teach, you know, my kids this. Kids, when they see another kid in the playground that's dope, they go in the other direction. Yeah, because they're afraid of that that smoke, mm-hmm. and yeah. they want to go to the court where they're the best. Well, they they superior. They yeah, superior and I'm like, yeah. no, go go to the dudes. Go to that mm-hmm. dude. There you well, go. Yeah, right. yeah. That action. Yeah. yeah, like that action. You, you you get there, and I remind everybody about Jay Kidd and, and Gary Payton, how Gary used to beat up on Jay, and the Jay wanted to play. He had to buckle up and and, yeah. and play ball, and so that's how I felt about the Big East. Kerry was there. AI was there. Like when I played against them, it wasn't just, you know, I want to win, but it's it's not a matchup between the both of us, but our teams, you know, I think we probably had seven, seven or eight teams in the, uh, in the dance that year mm-hmm. because everybody was hooping. Everybody was, you know, everybody was hooping. <laughs> and, and right then is, is like, you learn like when the team wins, everybody receives some type of reward or, a great benefit from the success of that individual, that team. You know, we we had Deron Sheffer got drafted, Travis Knight got drafted, mm-hmm. uh, Donnie Marshall got drafted. Donnie Marshall, yeah. You know, that's that's it. So I, I learned early, like let's win, and then I, the chips are gonna fall where they fall. Hey man, shout out to Kerry Kittles, man. No yeah, hot socks, baby. He had me wearing the high socks. No yeah. He had me. Then I remember when he used to wear the one last sock and no mm-hmm. other, other one. Though. Like, 
Yeah. Had the swag back in the day, real tough. My favorite draft class is the 96 Ooh, draft Y'all class. boys had a special on it. And to look back hey. on it now, since you retired, to look back on it and just to see all them hitters yeah, I had yeah. on y'all draft class. How is that to just be a part of probably the best draft class ever to be created? Yeah, it's, you know, arguably, you know, it's a little argument, but y'all, to be part of that argument is dope. Well, yeah, and I've always looked at 84 and I thought, you know how amazing that that class was. But yeah. As I started to look at '84, and I looked at at '96, top to bottom. Yeah, top to bottom. And, and and and, but I'll even throw something out there that needs recognition. Is Ben Wallace? Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace didn't get drafted. Mm-hmm. I said he got acknowledgement in the little thing, though. Like he, he obviously back then, it was he wasn't in the picture with y'all, none of that. But yeah, yeah. But Ben Wallace is he was just the, announced for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. The fact that he had such an impact in the time that he played based on where he came from speaks volumes to, you know, that that class, you know, those freshmen coming into or rookies coming into the NBA that year. You know, you you when you talk top to bottom, Derek Fisher has five rings. Mm-hmm. Steve Nash has two MVPs. Mm-hmm. AI has an MVP. Mm-hmm. You know, we have countless All-Stars and Olympians uh, and now Hall of Famers. So. It certainly produced a lot. And the, the interesting thing, too, is I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but just go back and look at your draft class and look at the one before and then look at the one after. And you remember all these players and guys that you look up to. And then what you realize is each draft class only has like two or three players that you remember, remember, mm-hmm. like that put in work. Some guys you remember their name. You might have remembered them in college or whatever. But guys that actually put in True. work, yep. you know, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, it's, it's only – there's only like two to three, you mm-hmm. know, real talk guys per class. So when you talk about a class that produces so many mm-hmm. um, Hall of Famers, like I don't know, you know, I could take credit for it all I want because I was a part of it, but I did my part, you know, because the thing that drove me crazy, and I told this, I wrote this in my book. I wrote a book three years ago. It's called From the Outside, and um, I always used to say this: Slam Magazine. You know, on the cover that on the inside of that that cover, it, they had the accolades of most likely to uh, win MVP, win championships. And my name was nowhere but one spot. And it said most likely to fade into obscurity. Oh, really? Ooh. Yeah. And so, you know, me being a uh, somewhat well-read young man, I was like, I, I think I know what obscurity means. But let me look. look it up. <laughs> let me look it up. I sure. need to be sure. <laughs> And for the first four or five years of my career, I did not want to do any interviews with Slam mm. because it pissed me off so much that, you know, y'all kind of wrote me off. Like all this that you could have said and you you said, I. but the truth be told, after that, I realized that that's what we need. That's what I needed at the time because, you know, you, you, you the motivation. Yeah, back to what we were talking about with high school. You get you get comfortable and think that you made it and then things are going to be easy from here on out. That's when you slip. You know, you can't get comfortable. You know, you get comfortable and then all of a sudden that's when your skill sets start to diminish. That adversity is what all of our children need because, you you know, all these kids are like, man, I'm going to make every team that didn't pick me. Hey, the fact that you got drafted 19th might be the reason that you became an MVP mm-hmm. or an all-star or an Olympian. Because you went to a team that can handle it instead of a young team. Yeah, and if you got drafted number four, that might have sent you into a different 
trajectory mm-hmm. that wouldn't allow you to accomplish the thing that you accomplished because you came in with the with the cool man strut, you know, and mm-hmm. he's seen a lot of players do that. So and you're one of those guys, I just you know, I just was watching the uh your draft class documentary, right? And so seeing that it showed me one, you know, one of the few other sides of when you're actually at the draft and you're getting drafted. I'm watching you when you were a guy who got drafted to a team you didn't work out for, got traded. And it was like, your experience didn't seem just like, hey, I'm joyous. I'm like, it was kind of like, seemed like confusion. Like I'm trying to figure what the hell is going on, figure it out and what's what's really going on. So like walk me through your your draft experience. Like I, you obviously, you got to walk across that stage to shake David Stern hand, which we all dream of, but Yours came with a caveat because even in that moment, you really didn't understand what was going on because you didn't work out for this team and all of these different things were going on. So take me through your draft experience. That year, uh, Philly had the first pick, then Toronto, Vancouver, Milwaukee, Minnesota, Boston. They projected me as a top four pick. So I went to Philly. I worked out with them, but they were going to pick AI. That was a wasted trip. I went to Toronto. I met with Isaiah Thomas, who was the GM, direct player, president at the time. And I just had a meeting with him. I didn't have to work out anything. I went to Vancouver. That was my hardest workout. They put you through agility training, lifting, shooting, everything. And so day before the draft, I'm out in L.A. and they called me in. Minnesota wanted to meet with me. And I was like, I, I, why am I going to Minnesota? Milwaukee was probably one of the hardest ones because – I landed in Chicago. There was weather. You know, Chicago is not the place to fly into in the summertime. It's always some some weather coming in. Mm-hmm. I had to play with Chris Robinson one-on-one. He had just finished. And then I had to play Mike Dunleavy one-on-one. And so I didn't know what I, I'm playing this, this old guy. What am I supposed to be doing here? Like, I'm playing this guy that he's trying to determine if I'm good or not. Right. I had a great meeting with the owner there. And then so come... I went to LA for to do some interviews and then I'm flying back to meet my family in New York and Minnesota says, Hey, we'd love to meet with you before draft. And I was like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> so come draft. I was like, so all the teams that want me or see me, I, I figured that I was going to, to Milwaukee yeah. before the draft. I leave my hotel red hour back and ML car calls me and says, listen, if you slip to six, we're going to take you with our pick. I was like, okay, cool. I need to go to Boston. I was like, I don't know what the chances that are. So come the fourth pick when Minnesota or Milwaukee picked Stefan, I knew that Milwaukee was high on me and they picked Stefan. So I was like, I'm going to Boston. Right. <laughs> and and the minute the Minnesota pick comes up, the cameras come to me and I'm confused. I'm right. like, why are they coming? Why are they picking me? Like I don't, and then I knew they had J.R. Ryder. So why are they picking me at the two spot, which I didn't know that I was being used in, in, in a trade, which ended up getting and Andrew Lane, you know, and myself in the, in a two player swap for Stefan Marbury. That's why M- Milwaukee took him off the table because they knew how bad Minnesota wanted Steph. So sure. you learn those things later on after you've gone through it and, and you understand the business side of it. And, um, I wish I knew it then so I could have enjoyed the process more. It, it's just, it's such a, we've been on such an incredible uh, journey and, you know, to be here on the other side of it and to be able to talk about it and, and share our stories, you know, between you, myself, 
I think I can speak for both of you when when I say and I tell all the kids this, that all of my dreams have come true. And that right there is, is, is an amazing feeling to have. Now, I still continue to dream and I can continue to have aspirations to do other things. But as a kid, you know, the things that I've done up to this point, like were everything and more than I could ever imagine. I think that, too, is another thing that, you know, not at the outset or not at the start, but, you know, in, in doing this podcast, that's something that I've that I've learned about, my, about myself, you know, about both of us, actually, you know, that that we are examples for not only you know, players that have played in the league or guys coming, you know, behind us, younger guys coming up or just kids in general that life ain't going to always be perfect. Life wasn't perfect for me or Black. And you know what I'm saying? We didn't both been through the ring. I'm sure you've been through your ups and downs regardless of how much fame, status, accolade, anything. We all humans and we, you know, we go through what we go through and we not perfect. But I, I feel like, you know, me and D Miles with this pod, you and your life is the example of everything you accomplished. Like we walk in examples of regardless of what you go through. Like you said, if you persevere and you continue on that you could get to the other side of it and do what you want to do. But Lord knows we don't look like what we've been through. And it's like, it's a blessing for us to be able to be here and, and do all of these things that we're able to do. Sit here and talk to, we sitting here talking to Jesus Shuttlesworth right now. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that because this is like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't care what nobody say. Them retro 13s yeah. is the Jesus Shuttleworth. <laughs> them, yeah. the, them the Denzels. Yeah. You feel me? Them the them. I this, watched that movie like, every goddamn day. Y'all, I like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you identified with the culture in a way that some people can't, no matter what happened. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you being in that movie was like, what? He got gang. Like, when that dropped, bro, do you, like, I don't even, like, what was that like for you to be like, did you even know going at, well, you couldn't, there's no way going into the movie. You knew that it would <laughs> become what it's become and mean what it's meant to the culture and all that. But just what was your feelings when you got the call that, Hey, Spike Lee wants you to be in the movie. And Denzel in it. Which... Right. With Denzel Washington. I didn't know any of that uh, leading up to it. And it started because uh, we were playing in the garden uh, early this season. Uh, Alan Houston killing me. Hey. Two O. Yeah, yeah. They don't people don't know about H2O. They don't know about H2O. I say that on this show. That was one of the coldest nicknames ever. That one had H2O. That's all. That jump shot was water. (laughs) I said, oh, shit. Yeah, so he's killing me. He might have 14 or 15 and a half. And, you know, Spike is like, you going to guard Allen tonight? What you going to do? And so, end of the season, you know, Allen probably had like eight or nine. He wasn't doing what he did before. And then Spike was over there trying to, you know, get my attention. I was ignoring him because I thought he was going to uh, go in on me. And then he finally got my attention. He told me, he said, hey, I'm shooting this movie. When your season's over, we'll come audition. And I was like, bet. So I gave him my information. Uh, I was just in Connecticut. So I drove in like, you know, every week. And I started doing these auditions. And I remember the first audition I did, I did with uh, Nicole Ari Parker. Mm-hmm. And then... Like we had to do these love scenes and then I, I did a love scene with Sally Richardson. So I was coming in and I was like, I don't Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, because they're auditioning for the role of Lala. So I'm mm-hmm. over here. And like, that's before anybody is anybody, and you just 
Yeah, we and mm. doing kissing scenes and, and, and all that stuff. Sugar oh. Ray, <laughs> Sugar Ray. <laughs> yeah. So the third time I come in, Denzel's there. Mm-hmm. What's that like? You know, I, I guess when you come from, you know, being in the NBA and you're around all these other, I, I've been around Michael Jordan, so. Yeah. That that aura right there that's, is that's Dude, God Almighty. Yeah, right right yeah. that, that's Bruce Lee. That's right right there. Right there. Right there. Yeah, that, that's why when, when okay, you know, Dooley noted. Yeah, you've been around that aura, so so it is no different. You know, you've been around people and yeah. and, and seeing celebrities come to you play. So fair point. Um, so, but he comes to the room. He's got this afro. I don't, you know, I don't really have a understanding of what's going on or what's about <laughs> going on. And, so we start doing talking and, and and he's so great. One of the I think one of the greatest attributes a person can have a part of their character is to allow other people to feel comfortable around them to disarm a person. Yes. Yes. And that's how Denzel is. That's how he was, because he immediately, you know, started talking about basketball and, and shooting the ball and just talking about my game and asking 50 million questions. And it was never about him. And so he gave me a place. He gave me a space to be able to have a voice and to talk to him. And it wasn't like, you know, some people you you get to and they start talking and you can tell they don't want to listen to you or nothing that you're talking about whatsoever. And that's fine, too. But, you know, the people that are your type of people. And then Bell from Jump Street was that guy that always we, we'd be sitting on the set and then he'll start talking about. And he's like, yo, tell me about uh, about Big Dog. What's Big Dog like? And we're about to shoot a scene, and then we're talking basketball. I had an acting coach. My acting coach was like, you got to stop talking to him. She wanted me to be in character because in this scene, I'm fully mad at him. So she didn't think I could have a conversation with him and then be mad at him. Be mad at him. I was like, I, I know how to compartmentalize. Like, you know, and that was him, too. He would sit there and he would be talking, and all of a sudden he was on the minute the camera was rolling. I equated he and Spike to a great point guard because what they would do is they would put you in a situation and Spike would do it real fast. He would ask you for certain things and he expects you to hit it. And but Denzel would just throw it at you. I had one of the one of the funniest guys on the set was Roger Grunabir Stiff. Mm-hmm. Big Willie, you know, light skinned dude, right thing. He was in character the whole time on set. I mean, we'd be sitting down having lunch, and he'd come over there doing lines. <laughs> and we'd be sitting there eating, and he, I mean, he didn't, he never left character. That's how some people do that. And so, shit, what huh? you find out, like, from all the people on set, like, everybody is different in, in their acting styles. And so, for me, that helps guide me because, you know, the first scene, and check this out, we had a, we had a brand Jordan meeting in, uh, in Soho. On the morning we had, because we were talking about a bunch of gear uh, and how to do this and that. With it was '97, so Finley was there, Ben Baker oh, was there, I think Derek Anderson was there, yeah. and so Spike asked me. He said, "Hey, we're shooting this scene in Coney Island tonight, and we need more players. Ask the guys if they want to come down and shoot the scene." So I told these dudes, I said, "Yo, I'm doing this movie." If y'all want to be in a movie, come down with shooting the scene in Coney Island. You know, when guys hear that at first, they're like, oh, man, I'm good. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Michael Finley seen the money cut, movie come out. He's like, man, why you ain't tell me? I said, I did tell you. Damn. <laughs> damn. Because, damn. He, 
Damn. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. But uh, Vin Baker, he came. And Vin Baker was in, you hear him in the opening scene, they call him Big Man, and we're running up down the floor where it's about three in the morning, we're shooting on Coney Island. And uh, he, the funny thing with Vin, he told me, he goes, man, when the movie came out, like I'm telling everybody that I'm in the movie. So I get to the uh, theater, we're running late, and I get in there and I'm watching the whole time and I didn't never see my part. And so he called me, he's like, man, I ain't in the movie. I was like, you are in the movie, you're in the beginning. So he brings uh, some people to the movie and he's in the beginning, but he missed his part because it's the opening scene. So <laughs> we, we played basketball. We were in the projects. It was it was every single day. Uh, it gave me a greater appreciation for movies. Long hours. Yeah. Every time we would shoot these scenes. Uh, it was it was interesting because the people that work on the movie, like do lighting, continuity, mm-hmm. like all these different uh, positions, they come up to me and say, how did you learn how to do all that stuff? Because they know nothing about the NBA. They assumed I was an actor. Right. And so they were, they were like, how did you learn how to do all this stuff? I was like, oh, just, just over the years, I just, you know, taught myself. And, and a lot of times the pressure was on me because midday and at night from lunch to dinner, there was craft services, so there was always food. We only got to eat when I finished the scene. So they're waiting for me to knock the scene out so we can go. So I'm over here. Everybody's like, hurry your ass up. Do your, do your thing, my yeah. brother. We, <laughs> we need to eat. So, yeah. so it, was, it, it was certainly, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I was uh, sad that I did one other movie, but I hadn't been able to do anything else. I mean, timing. Uh, you know, I still have an agent that bring me scripts and I read stuff because I would love to to do more movies in the next couple of years. Because remember, Samuel Jackson, Morgan Freeman, they started late in their their. Yeah. I think Morgan Freeman was like in his 50s when he first got it. When he right. Had his right. First role, so. He that dude, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you guys, you you have your agent like tell them, you know. Because, you know, remember, Hollywood is about casting. You find a look that they're going for. And, you know, like Common is doing a lot of stuff now Yeah, uh, in, in with movies and TV. So it, it's certainly... You know, Black, you know, Black did, you know, he didn't been in a few movies. No. Denzeling it up and doing his thing. We didn't been on shows. I didn't been out there a little bit with her. You know, we got a little... Yeah, that was, but that was all from seeing you on the screen, man. Like I say, that movie, I watched that movie so much because I felt like I related to it. It was like it was my life. It was... You know, like from the colleges, from the, like everything, it just felt like the people around. It's just like it was like my story. Then you had time Jordan. Out, time out, time out, time out. Let me let time out. I, I would be remiss for myself and for the fans just listening. We need to know the big U college visit with Rick Fox. <laughs> Was there was there any parallels in real life for any of your you said UConn took care of you? Was there was was did you have a Rick Fox on that visit taking care of you? No, unfortunately I did not. <laughs> but we you and I know and, and other guys know that it that is you know part of the program. Like we dealt with it that. It can be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it didn't happen to me. I, I think that, you know, at the time I wasn't a big enough recruit, but you know, coaches tell these guys, and you know, you've seen it in in a couple programs. Like a couple coaches got fired because they had you know prostitution on their campus to try to get get recruits to come to their school. So yeah, that's definitely that, true. That, that that's the thing when when Spike and I went over the script and in, in pre production, we went through this whole thing. We talked about everything uh, that a young guy can experience. But we took it. Through. 
know, in every angle we we exacerbated it so people understood at a at an extreme level what you face some guys it's agents some guys it's the girlfriend sometimes it's the relatives sometimes it's the high school coach right sometimes it's the the brother or sister in this case for for jesus it was all those things yeah. yeah, so in filming those takes, was it a lot of takes in those particular scenes, or you was just one <laughs> shot shot and you got up out of there? <laughs> what scene? The, the, the scene, the dorm room scene. <laughs> that took eight hours. Wow. Victory! That's why. Wow. I'm just saying, man, we got to give people what they want. I know people want to know about that. I've been, ever since I ever saw that movie, that's all I've been ever wanting to say. Like, man, boy, I know that shit shooting that movie scene was just crazy. Like, just being, you a young dude, like, please, like, that was crazy. Yeah. I remember seeing that shit. I'm like, this, what? I'm well, like, this is crazy. Well, let me back you up. Let me back you up. So what Spike did was normally on set, you have an A camera and you have a B camera. And and so around the set, there's all these monitors so you can see what's happening on the set. So he, what he did was he closed the set so nobody could see. You could only hear. Mm-hmm. And then there was only one camera and he was he was uh, in another room watching from that one camera. And then he, he gave me the option. He gave me this. It was like a strap, like a jock strap. And he said, and I asked him, I said, what's going to happen here? Like, <laughs> straight up. Yeah, are we, is this about to go down? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, is this now. okay? <laughs> yeah. He looked at me and he said, he's like, listen, whatever you guys do, I, it's. This it might be the greatest moment in the pot. And I'm yeah. <laughs> so, so I, um, we started seeing and then we're just sitting there and, and it was all like we didn't you know we acted it you know it was great it just and and in the scene we got what we needed to get to show the visual which i need to show yeah what we wanted everybody to see and understand but what was fascinating was when i walked off set everybody's man man my guy <laughs> the audio so like man my brother my brother <laughs> I didn't say he's with the my man. <laughs> <laughs>this is what I wanted to go back as before we moved on from the He Got Gang because this was a big part of my whole life and upbringing like at what point did you realize that it had that type of an impact on the culture and it was the, the cultural phenom that it was because literally like you said y'all took it to the extremes with everything but like Everything in that movie, somewhere on some level, on some end of the spectrum, it was truth that that was birthed from. You know what I'm saying? I think that's why the culture really relates to it because so many of us grew up in different neighborhoods and we got the big willies that's like the dudes that's looking out or whatever you want to call it. Then you got girls, then you got different type of agents or street agents that when you become good, they want to get by you. You got different family members family members, friends that want to try and expose, all of those different things. So at what point did you see like, damn, this really touched our people? Like, we relate with this. We, us, like, and when I say our people, I mean like the basketball players, the 5,000 of us that made it to the league. Like, all of us on some level have dealt with all of those things that you dealt with in that movie. And that's where those ideas and those whole motives come from. Like, at what point did you feel like, yo, this is bigger than I thought it was ever going to be. I don't know if I ever 
understood the magnitude of uh, He Got Game. I remember going into, we were playing um, in Milwaukee that next year. And when we ran out on the floor, they played uh, the theme song. And I was like, yo, that's dope. Like, mm. just to run out to it, because I felt like it was a moment of recognition that they were showing. And it wasn't like, you know, normally in Milwaukee, they used to play Laverne and Shirley when we used to run out. <laughs> um, but they played that. And every day I get called Jesus. So I knew. Like, listen, that's one of the coldest, that's shit one of the coldest nicknames like, in the history of the game is <laughs> Jesus Shuttlesworth. That's like. That go down in the history of the game, top five, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and, and and no matter where I go, whether I'm in this country or around the world, people always call me Jesus. And you know, at first it was, it was, it, you know, you're you're like I, I played some golf with uh, Alfonso Ribeiro, and mm -hmm. you know, people walking around and call him Carlton all the time, and he's like James Alfonso. <laughs> and, and so for me at first, you know, it was like trying to get used to people calling me Jesus. I wouldn't answer to it. But now it's like it's just one of those things that it's cemented in stone now. Mm -hmm. It truly is, you know, it's like one of those films that when you revisit the 90s, it'll be something that for us, you know, athletes, it'll be something that will always kind of speak to the times of which we grew up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely one of those joints for me because, like, I feel like anybody who see that movie, anybody is the top athlete of any, I don't care whether it's basketball, football, baseball, whatever it is, like, Jesus Shuttleworth is that athlete, especially in today's game with all of this damn social media and these guys getting a million followers before. Every one of them kids are Jesus Shuttleworth. Mm -hmm. They are being pulled and tugged in a billion different directions taunted with money, fame, or whatever you think before they even get there. And that's exactly what, like, when you getting taken to the agent house and this, like, everybody didn't deal with that, whether it was being sent jewelry at your dorm or being sent money or being offered money and by a relative or a friend or, you know, a teammate or whatever it may be. We all didn't experience that. That's what made that, I feel like that's what made that movie so you know, so relatable to everybody because, you know, earlier, like, not so much, I, well, I, don't, I can't speak on what's going on now, but I know in them 90s and them early 2000s, that's when it was like, in them 80s too, you know, it, that's when it was like people was paying like they way, it was everything was going crazy with being given this and that, and it was like, that shit was just like, yo, this movie, like Spike Lee and the timing of that shit, it was so dope. Everybody is hooping right now. Gotta feel yeah. this. It did a lot for me. It definitely did. I watched it too. And, and we're due. Uh, he and I, I see Spike at least uh, once a year in the summer. And we always talk about uh, doing a sequel because there's so much uh, subject matter pertaining to, you know, young kids, young girls, uh, you know, hoopers. And like I said earlier, like movies tell the story of the time. and who better to continue to tell that story than Spike? What is it going to be a she got game? Well, we tussle with that a little bit. But again, and I, and I say that I haven't said this to you guys yet, but what you've gone through, what you've experienced in your life, you got to write a book. I have oh, one. Soon comes. Awesome. I want one. <laughs> so what happens is, is since we played in this, in this, this walk of life, uh, we have people that cover our, our lives, you know, beat writers, uh, journalists, and they tell mm -hmm. stories about who we are. 
And and you ever read a story somebody tells about you is not true. You know, they say some things from their perspective. And so what happens is when you write a book, because even when I wrote my book, I had to tell this guy that I'm writing with that, you know, certain things happen over what did and what didn't happen. And, you know, they they will switch the story around. Secondly, movies get transformed from books. And then when movies about us become part of the mainstream, that gives, you know, black actors roles. Black actors get roles, then young black children have the opportunity to see people in America, you know, thriving, not always, you know, being a pimp or a slave or a prostitute or uh, a drug dealer or a gang member. Um, those are the stereotypes that have been um, weighs heavily on who we are as people. Um, but we have doctors, lawyers, firemen, teachers, professors, you know, all walks of life. So, but the more we write books, the more we give people like us roles. And so it's important uh, to put books out there because kids need inspiration. And, you know, the, all these stories that we talked about, it's great to be able to read them and, and kind of take a journey through your life. Your life is like a museum now. Yeah. Yeah, so my my me and Blacks, so I Spike Lee's story where we felt like we was in He Got Game, right? <laughs> Fast forward to what was that after, after our rookie, rookie year, Black? After, after our rookie year, you know what I'm saying? Me and Black and Miles here, we get the phone call say, "Yo, Jordan Brand wants to shoot a commercial with you and your boy." And guess who gonna direct it? Spike Lee. We went crazy. What? We lost our mind, <laughs> we right? We like, what? They got they about to fly us to New York City. And we about to do a, a, a Jordan Brand commercial, like just a little between you, me, and Black, and the rest of the world listening. The Jordan 17s that came out in the briefcase, me and D-Miles personally feel like those is D-Miles and the Q-Rich Jordans, <laughs> because that was our commercial. We did the commercials for what We Up in That Joint, Knuckling Up. It was the old guru. school, Guru, the Guru, the old school joint. We was in the yeah, church. Had us in the church and well, we in Brooklyn. I was in, was in, in Brooklyn. Uh, we was in Brooklyn. I did one by nah, myself. You, this and me and Q did one together. This was the Jordan Seventeens with the strap and all that. Like those to this day that came in the briefcase. Yeah. Like we get people adding us and tweeting us. Like people use the briefcases as, used to have as a, a uh, tattoo. They put their tattoo gun in there. They put their clippers in there. Different people use it, but like. Those shoes right there, like that was our moment where we felt like we on top of the world. Like, bro, like you talking about some young kids at 19, 20 years old flying out to do a video. First of all, we doing a Jordan brand video. Jordan is our idol. He got us doing a video. Then we doing Spike Lee director. We about Russia, to be up in the show. Like, we get there, we got a damn trailer and all this. So he had a trailer. I had my own trailer. We was like, you. Like every single thing was like as big as it get for us. We was like, damn, dog, like this is it. And when them shoes dropped, like these are shoes. I, hey, you y'all boys see them seventeens drop? Like that was our one moment in the sun. Like with that yeah, shit, we like, with the we foot like yo. they had our picture in there with the shoes. We was like, oh, oh that's crazy. Well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a dope ass moment. The world stopped when Jordan said we was gonna be on Jordan brand be on there with you and like the whole squad that they already had before we came. Like, how was it for you when you found out you was going to be on Jordan brand and you was going to be representing Jordan 
And wait, you was the you was you were the original, the original member, yeah. right? You was the you the original number one. Yeah, I was I was the. Uh, <laughs> there can only be one first. You know, there, if there was nothing, it was not. They were talking about it, so when they mentioned it to me, I didn't know what it was. Like it wasn't you know something that we had ever seen before, because uh, mm-hmm. I had always worn Nike. So you know, I was like, I'm gonna wear Nike. Nike's gonna be our umbrella company uh, to Jordan. So I'm all. I'm down with this, you know, George doing it. I want to be a part of it. And, you know, just from where we are today is so much has grown and come out like from. Yeah. It's beautiful, yeah, ain't it? It's beautiful where yeah, it's right now. About, like you know, Paris Saint-Germain uh, overseas, you yeah. know, and how he collaborates. I, I did a, uh, two years ago, I went to a sneaker con in, uh, in Dubai I, I did it on behalf of Brand Jordan, and, and I remember seeing that. I mean, it's incredible to go to the Middle East and see shoes that you had on your feet on display, yes. because of some sneakerhead, you know, collected them, and then you see the collaborations, mm-hmm. you know, the different designers that that build Supreme and 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 Zappa. Yeah. Is it Zappa? Uh, like yeah. I got a chance to meet a lot of those people, and 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 they're collaborating uh PSNY mm-hmm. just where it's come from like that's what I love about Nike and Jordan is that it, you know they've always had their pulse you know on the streets on the culture yeah yeah giving people the platform to be able to enhance the brand and that you know that that's all you hope with America you know we know America is the land of the free home of the brave uh we've had a lot of inequities uh you know for a long time but when people do it right, you realize like the diversity is what makes this great country incredible because, you know, black, brown, white, you know, Asian, Jewish, you know, Muslim, like that's the most fascinating thing in the world. When people come together and you have a commonality in tennis shoes and sneakers and how how it used to feel to you when you you get them Jordans and you used to get them exclusive pair and you know them things you got them things on and you know it's ABC or it's one of them TV games and you know everybody is talking about these shoes like yeah. how does it feel to when you used to have them exclusives on and you get out there and play it feel like you completed the uniform yeah I mean I, I it's it's fascinating to me to watch guys now that don't keep the same color pattern with their uniform. Yeah. You always yeah, that's crazy, it. right? Yeah, you add a little something to it, but you keep it, you know, it just keep it. Keep your colors right. Yeah, <laughs> keep your colors right. Don't throw something else. You know, I might accent a, a void color or or pink, but you keep them base colors right. Yeah. I, I, I just remember uh, when social media became big, when, when this stuff started, when viral was a thing, like I would be, you know, wearing shoes, and then that's all they talked about after the game was yeah. the shoes that I had on my feet. And I, I was like, "Wow, this this is a real thing." Like, there's a culture out there that exists that I'm a part of that you know follows this. This is yeah, this is legit. And you know, yeah. I, 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 you, they, I that was our generation. We was following it when we got in, and he accepted us. We like we part of this bomb squad. Oh my soul! <laughs> I get asked a lot. Just like you say, when the internet and the, the social media started, I get asked a lot, like, because I'm a one of the longtime Jordan members, like, man, who got the best? The only person that I really defer to and say, you know, had a better PE game than me is you. And that becomes because of the longevity. You had championships, you had them long playoff mm-hmm. runs, and you know how they plan for that for us. Yeah. So 
I missed that in LA. I ain't yep. getting no playoff runs in there. I got it in Miami. I mean, I got it in Phoenix. I got it in Miami. And then in New York, like New York's one of my illest stretches because that was like at the peak of peas and it was like it was a different color. Like, and that's the main reason I say that you, me and you had some of the illest PEs going because of our longevity with the brand and then our teams were so far from the original colors that they were used to. You was hitting them with them greens and them yellows with Seattle yeah. and then the greens in Boston and then even with the gold, the yellow and red and black in yeah. Miami because I had some ignorant stuff my one year in Miami too. So it's like that flavor. And then I say Bibby was like a close right there because Bibby had the, the purples purple, in yeah. Sacramento. Yeah, and then Atlanta colors and stuff. So he was right there. But like the longevity, because like, bro, when they gave you the ring game joints, them 11s and them shits, I say, hold on. I say, shut the damn door. I say, nothing. <laughs> Dumb, and then you got ignorant and went your ass out to shoot around mismatch. I say, oh, hell. Yeah. I said, this <laughs> entire damn match. I the internet. The internet yeah, lost the right now. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I, listen, they created a pack for me with them shoes. I remember it yeah. all. The mismatch, uh, the, yes. the 11s and the, and the 9s. I remember like, it all. You know, the way the way we were fortunate because we had, you know, to your point, we were able to, you know, have longevity. So I spanned, you know, a couple different uh, generations playing in two decades and then having the different colors. But then, you know, later on playing, you know, primetime TV, you know, you got the Christmas games. You know, all you of got, that. Yeah, you got all the games that are poignant moments, NBA moments from all-star games. Yeah, using the all-star Olympics games. Play 2000. Like, they had to construct something that, and, and I told me when I when I got the three-point record in um, in Boston, I told them, you know, when they stopped me at 13, I said, listen, it was like the day before, and I was pleading with them. I said, I need you to make these 13s for me. I need you to make them for me because I can't just break this record and not have something special on my feet. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to always be a moment that is. Um, Are these the Sugar Ray 13s? Yeah. So, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, so hard. I had them shoes on. But listen how they got to me. They countered and countered the shoes to me by playing, and they got to me uh, right before the game. Mm. And they, they made the mock tub on the green, which means it was written, mm-hmm. you know, mm. uh, in Arabic. So. You know, that's what Jordan did for us. Yeah, They made sure that we had our player exclusives. Mm-hmm. They made sure that it was something that was special to us. They wanted us to know, and the people around us, they supported us, and those kids were going to buy those shoes. I was at NBA Juniors uh, in Orlando like a year or so ago. I went to the NBA Juniors. Your mom was there. We were sitting there watching the game, watching the championship game, and just laughing. And she just uh, she nudged me. She said, hey, so... I know you was with Jordan. What do y'all do with all them shoes? Like, where do they go? <laughs> like, like, what do y'all do? He said, because I'm having the problem with my son. Got all these shoes. and He, he don't know where to put them. So I, what do you do with all these shoes and all this stuff you collect? Listen, it, you know, I think I never owned a pair of Jordans when I was growing up. My favorites were the fire red fours. You, you, you mm-hmm. can ask a kid what their favorite Jordan is. You can basically guess their age. Yeah. Because how we grow up, you know, like I remember playing with Beasley, Michael Beasley. Young he was Bees. like, yeah, Bees was like, my favorite George is the 16, Joe. 
16s all day long. I was like, young ass. Like, you like this. We were playing in the league in 16. Like, you know, like the fours, because I was growing up and I didn't see him. And then I remember the kids in the neighborhood. And it just, it takes us back to a time and place. And so um, now, I actually, before I got on with you guys, I opened up about four or five boxes of shoes. And it's fascinating to be able to see, you know, the evolution of the shoes and, and you know, directionality. I, I'm astounded that they continue to come up with new and different ideas. Yeah. But we are still ambassadors to the shoe game. We are sneakerheads. We are what Jordan hopes uh, that we would be embodied the spirit of his mm-hmm. shoe and his legacy. So what I do is I always try to keep that in mind. And when I, whenever I get a box of shoes, I you know, guys that wear shoes like me, I make sure they have some. But, you know, for the most part, I, I collect, you know, I continue, you know, because. Well, you know, if you collected them, Joe, you the all time collector. Because I yeah. can just uh, imagine what's in your shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, just imagine. Everything. everything. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got to be careful because I give away stuff, too. So I got to I got to be, be careful what I give away because there's some shoes I have. I guarantee you, like, if I put a pair of shoes, a certain pair of shoes on auction, I could get, you know, at least 30, 50. I, would get, I, I think I, I think I would get a thousand for a pair of shoes. Because I got a couple of pairs. I got you, them. them you probably got 20 million. In the, in. <laughs> I, got, I got two pairs in particular. Just off the top of my head, I could think of I didn't sold for over 30,000 on the internet. The M&M 4s and then the, uh, the, not the low cut, but the mid cut Derek Jeter 11 suede joints. Yeah. With the two on the back. Cause the mid, the low cut, everybody got uh, apparently, but the the mids, those go crazy. And I got a pair of both of them shit. Yeah. I ain't like, that's I why I say I'm not no sneaker head, but I just, you know, whatever I got, I got. Yeah. All right, what you think about the new generation of Jordan players? And two of them players is from St. Louis, you know, my little, my, my homeboys, Bradley Bill and Jason Tatum, but you got Zion Williams, you got Russell Westbrook still representing. You got uh, and he picked CP3 a lot of WNBA Mello. players. Uh, he picked some WNBA players. I think it was Tia Cooper and uh, Nurse. I think she she yeah, played for uh, yeah. yes, yeah, she played for the Sparks now. Like just uh, how the brand is evolving and got this new young talent of elite players to move to the next generation. And Zion just came out with his new shoe under Jordan. So how is that to see the next generation to push the brand even further? Again, I, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but uh, it, it's so important to try to educate, you know, these guys because they're going to fall in our lap at some point uh, in their life. You know, you become retired. But while you're in that position, you know, what you can do with that position to, to really take the brand to the next level, because we we actually help grow the brand to what it is today. Yeah. And uh, and certainly the NBA. So we have to do everything we can to give those young fellas a soft landing. You know, Brad and I talk whenever he's, you know, he'll call me from time to time and we'll have a conversation. And then I try to give them uh, space to ask questions, to seek advice. Yeah, that, that's the, the most important thing that we could do now in the space that, that we're in and, and because I always had older heads that that I could talk to because sometimes you can't talk to guys on your team. They don't understand or even your coach mm-hmm. or even family members. So mm-hmm. to have somebody who's been through what you what you've been through to be able to you know ask questions and then help you deal with things on your team better. You know, super important. And, and 
that's something that's a role that we can play for those uh those young people in, the, in this role now i just hope that they're humble enough to accept who we are and what we've been through because you know it's not always apples and oranges you know things you should hit the fan at, at some point where it's okay like you know something whatever's happened to you 10 years ago it ain't happening to you now but it's happened to somebody else and you know bad shit continues to happen and will always it's how you respond to it which uh makes you uh who you are and so i i just my dreams for them would be just to use the platform and really if you think about what mj did for the game just take that and, and grow it and continue to grow it so the people behind them uh can benefit when I got on the preseason team, when I came out to Boston, man, like I never had a teammate. Like you're a Hall of Famer. Like any day you could just say, "I I quit and I'm I'm good." You just won a championship, and then, man, we preseason, and man, you two hours before the first bus. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we we get to the gym on the first bus, you already soaking wet, and like in your shooting mode and in your style. I never out of the ten years I played, I never had a teammate that I seen like that. And I feel like this platform, these are the stories that, you know, they need to hear and see that like, man, uh, man, you was a Hall of Famer out the gate. Like I said, you could have quit any day and you doing it during preseason. <laughs> like the season haven't even started yet. You know, the phrase, if you stay ready, you never, never have to get ready. That's kind of what I subscribe to uh, my whole career because you put yourself in a situation where in first, you when you get drafted, it has a huge impact on you because whether you have older players mm -hmm. that teach you the ropes. And mm -hmm. for me, I had I had Elliot Perry, Michael Curry, mm -hmm. Armand Gilliam, God rest his soul. Yeah, oh, um, Johnny Newman, Johnny you know, Newman. Ben Baker, Sherman Douglas, like them guys, yeah. you know, they were no frills. It was just go out there and play. And, you know, Johnny Newman was a great uh resource for me because this man came suited and booted to every game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he didn't compromise. Mm -hmm. He came, he was like, it's my job. And that's where I, I picked that up from with him. And it was different back then. But with Elliot and Michael Curry, we shot before every game. You know, my first year, I didn't have a routine. And then I got with those dudes and we would we come over early. And then eventually they get traded away. And, you know, my, my career was like, uh, it was like life in Milwaukee. You know, when they sing the song and everybody start disappearing and they get mm -hmm. old and they yeah. get on. That's kind yeah. of how I was. And then I was the last man standing. And then uh, I developed routines where I had one person with me or a coach or a ball kid from another team. And the thing that always scared me was not being able to perform or do your job. So I was my biggest critic and I was my hardest strength coach or teacher or coach because when I was in there working out, I knew how I needed to push myself. Mm -hmm. So when I did get into games, I was so comfortable at all angles. I was comfortable everywhere. I, I I never, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. So the minute you get tired, you just have that, you have that much of less lift on your jump shot. And so I was in constant search of trying to keep that lift, you know, the same every time. So my release point was at the same point. So I had to make myself as uncomfortable as I could every single time, you know, on a back-to-back, you know, times when I had a week off, like it was always trying to constantly find that 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 comfort level, which I was always uncomfortable. So I always tried to you push myself. And what year do you would you say you started the routine of being there that early? Because for me, I would say I saw you. I was in L.A. This had to be year 
probably toward the end of year two, but I know definitely my whole third year and beyond. I can't, I remember showing up to the Staples Center, whatever time I got there. I, I was probably before most of my teammates, but you was out there, like, kind of like what D saying. You was already, you know what I'm saying? You was in a mid-workout when I come walking out there. You was in Seattle then. I'm come walking down. I'm like, damn. I'm like, I remember, you know, how some of the crew be around doing stuff on the court. I say, yo, man, I say, how long, how long Ray be here? They like, shit, I don't know. I've been, I've been doing this for about 30, 45 minutes. And he was here before I started doing this. And I'm like, damn. Like, you know what I'm saying? I was like, and I remember asking, um, asking one of the coaches. No, matter of fact, wasn't one of the coaches. I remember asking Desmond Mason, who played with you. And then I remember asking Rashard Lewis, because Rashard was my boy. I remember asking Rashard, like, man, what time Ray began to the gym? He was like, man, Ray asked you. Because, you know, sometimes he told me sometimes he would work with you. But, like, sometimes you you be there too early for him. Then I'm like... My life started coming early, right? I, I definitely don't think I'll probably come as early as you, but I did that shit for the rest of my career. I was there, man. I used to be there because I used to want to get there before everybody else to the shoot so I could just get my shit out the way. Ain't nobody's balls knocking mine in and out. Ain't nothing happening. I could really get through my thing and then be done. I'd be there when, the, when the, you know, the dance team there, they mm-hmm. going through the little dunk stuff. As soon as dunk people get out the way, I'm getting on and I'm about to do my stuff real quick so I could be out of there and then I could kind of relax. And do just chill when I, cause you know, I like to talk a lot. I'm sitting in the locker room talking to everybody by the time they get there, but I'm already done with my shit. I started doing that like second, third year after yeah. I saw you doing it. You see, I was getting there before the, the dunk squad and cheerleaders because yeah. I, I figured out like. That's insane, bro. Yeah, I figured out like <laughs> how I needed to be to get, you know, the work I need to put in, in, um, you know, based on what time I ate. You know, whether I was home on the road and then I can get get my massage work afterwards and then I can stretch. And then because the whole the whole idea is obviously you don't want to exhaust yourself, but put yourself through a, a workout where you get a sweat that is unparalleled. So when you go into a game, your body oh, has already won't. been there. Yeah. yeah. Your heart is already conditioned. And so. When I was in Seattle, I noticed because you know when you get traded to a team, like you know, bros be looking at you at the side of the, at the corner of their eye to try to figure out like who is this dude, like you know, because they knew or heard about who I was and what my my routine was, but they're like, why why Milwaukee trade him? So I'm feeling everybody watching me, and then Richard, he would start coming in and he started seeing it, and he was like, man, I need to start doing this shit. You know, I need to start, you know, putting in. And then what I started noticing, my routine started giving other people their routine because I understood what it takes to be consistent, you know, because consistency is the number one key to being great. You know, if you show up somewhere for 10 years, you know, the inner workings of your office, your workplace, well, whatever it is. Of course, yeah, you know they go and wrong, then, you know mm-hmm. how to fix it. <laughs> yeah, they're like, yo, get, go get D, uh, D Miles. D Miles knows how to fix it because he always here doing this yeah. and that. And so mm-hmm. what it does is it, it transforms because now when it's time to sign those checks, they got to pay who's the most valuable, ones who, who make the operation go and who is not expendable. And, you know, for me, I become everybody else's routine because now they know, like clockwork, I'm going to be there, good game or bad game. I always say the number one key to being great is being available. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the the most consistent thing that we as people have in our life, the most consistent thing, the thing that we see every single day mm-hmm. is the sun. 
Think about that. The sun comes up every single day, you know, depending on the summer and the winter, it'll change, the, the time will move, but it always comes up. We've never questioned whether the sun comes up and the sun provides so much for us. But imagine if one day the sun doesn't come up, you know, it's going to send a lot of people into panic and, it, you know, a lot of shit will happen in the world, but we have faith that it's going to come up every single day. So if you can, if you can connect yourself to that consistency every single day to be similar to that sun in your workplace, you know, whether you're playing a sport or the job, like people start to depend on that sun to, you know, plant flowers, to do your work, to cut the grass, to whatever it may be, you depend on that. And then when they see your consistency, it gives them a breadth of, uh, of experience of, of consistency for themselves that allows them to realize their greatness too, because now they see what it looked like, but if there's nothing there for them early, then they're just kind of waffling. I think with Richard early, it helped him realize, because I always said he can be one of the best players in the NBA. And Richard, he knew who he wasn't, and he worked himself into an incredible player and signed a huge contract and had a great career. And I like to think a, a lot of me being around him affected him in such a way that gave him uh, that foundation so he can uh, grow and be become an, uh, an all-star player. Oh, yeah, I got to speak on that because I was in that conference with Portland and y'all used to kick our ass all the time. But uh, just Rashard Lewis, man, just like how he was, how he played his game, man, you could tell he was so much better. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like he messed so well with, with you because you was absolutely – you came to Seattle and you gave that spark that, you know, GP didn't leave after they did their thing, but you gave that spark and y'all started making the playoffs and Rashad Lewis stepped Man. up big time. And like I say, me guarding him, I, I could see it in his game, how he just, his level of play. Like he knew where to be at at all times. He uh, His spacing was always well. He ne Like you say, he never did nothing out of body that he don't do. And he always was a complimentary player. Man, listen, them people, both of these boys, Ray and Rashad, took turns on our ass. Those we had in Japan or China when oh, y'all hit 50 no, on us in the damn. What was that? We was in, we was in China? No, we was, in China? Was Japan, but I wasn't on Japan. that trip. I wasn't on that trip. Because I actually had surgery. I had a bone spur break off into my ankle. So I missed the first 20 games of the season that year. Rashad gave y'all 51. You know, it was you hit us for, I thought you hit us for maybe you hit us for something else. No, something no, I think that was I think that was uh Ramanovich played well too. He, he he yeah, somebody else in the first game hit like 30 something because I remember I remember <laughs> no, it, <laughs> it, you know, it was Flip Murray, Flip, flip. it was Flip, that's flip. who it was Philly Flip. flip. Yeah, he really look, they, look, first game he lit us up for 30 or 40, then Rashad came next game, hit 51. Only reason I'm bringing this up, because clearly I wasn't the victim in all of this. I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really the guy guard neither one of them, so I could safely bring this up. But it definitely happened. I'm like, oh man, because I remember Dudley be saying like, well, we the message we sent it to the league is you. Is anybody come get 40, 50 on? That? Yeah, well, you, hey, you definitely you got to create uh, some some better uh, defensive momentum yeah. for us. Yeah, that, that was shy. Hey, yeah, I was see back then. I wasn't in that mode. I wasn't trying to really do all that, man. I was trying to you know stay out the way and get buckets. Yeah, that was shy, Lewis. Like I, I think coming from Seattle, going to Orlando, he still had that momentum. Of, like he just turned to a good player, a solid player. What was your what did your routine consist of? Like 
you was taking all of the, you know what I'm saying, you was comfortable in every shot. Like, what was your regular, like, you know what I'm saying, what was a regular routine for you? Well, I mean, I, I started shooting free throws. That was always, you know, the baseline. Whenever I felt like I was losing, my release was off, I'd just go to the free throw line. Like, the year I won a three-point contest, I shot free throws before the game just to work on that release. The the shooting part is just your lift, and that's something that you got to get those legs ready for. So that's why I would always shoot five from the baseline, from the corner, from the top of the key, and then on the, on the other side. And then I would sh- do the same thing from the three-point line. I would shoot five, but I would also – I would shoot 10 altogether, but I would run to half court mm-hmm. back into, right. you know, those spots. And then what I would do is I would run underneath the basket because I wanted to always work on my footwork coming from every different angle mm-hmm. and then running in transition. And, and then I would get on my knees and jump up and have a guy throw me the ball and shoot because now I had to work on getting lift from a standstill. You, I, I, had to, I was tr- trying to learn – teach my body how to create its own momentum to get its lift. It's one thing to be running transition and you jump, that's easy, but to be able to create the momentum as you have no energy or any inertia going forward, you got to just kind of create it with your body. So that, that's what I, that was the baseline for what I would do. And then sometimes I would start off at all the way at, uh, at the end line and run all the way into my shots, but I had to make five every time. And then I would do my pick and roll stuff, top of the key and on the elbows, you know, coach would guard me and I'd come off, I'd get into the middle. And then I would do my post-ups. Everything that I did covered every side of the court. Uh, so the thing that I learned, and I learned this through my injury was, since I'm right eye dominant, I'm quicker getting the ball off, you know, going over my right shoulder because all I had to do was glance at the basket. But on the, on the other side, you turn I, have to, I have to turn all the way around and get back to my right eye. So... Mm-hmm. I had to work, get my footwork. And that, that is the key is your footwork everywhere. And I, I always show kids like when the ball's coming, my lower body's already turned into the shot. My body might be open towards the ball, but my lower body is facing at the uh, basket. So once I go, it's up and down. The ball is just being transported up in the air to that spot. So it's, it's learning how I had to teach myself how to relocate the ball from different positions on my body. You know, bringing it from over here to then here, from over here to here, and from down here. Because, you know, guys guard you differently. I could bring the ball over here and still get to that spot, jump, and create the whole So those were the things that I was working on every single day, like trying to relocate the ball and get comfortable doing it. And then being able to shoot free throws. And, and, And here's the thing, and you guys know this. Free throws are very emotional. Like, when you get to the free throw line, you just think about it as much as, you know, when we were not in the league, I used to say, man, them guys make too much money missing free throws. But yeah. what happens is, is you get knocked on your ass. Um, you're pissed off. Somebody just fouled you. You're down to uh, you ain't getting the ball. Uh, coach yeah. just put you in the game. You ain't touched the ball. And you get fouled. like all those emotions going into a free throw and your mind ain't right. Yeah. So now you have to go through this routine and shoot free throws. You got to calm yourself down and then yeah, they stop. Yeah, it's not going to shoot. And, and what happens is, is people's uh, heart rhythm gets the best of them because they're, they're, they're allowing whatever's going on in their mind to affect their heart. Now it's like you miss free throws because you didn't calm that heart down. And so what do you do? How do you change that? Is you, you have to shoot emotional free throws when you're in practice. So every time I'm running, you know, every time after practice, it's a free throw game. It's something that makes me – 
unnerved or unrattled. And then I go shoot free throws because that's the only way to make it similar to the game situation. That's what I say. Like when you hit that, that championship shot with Miami, I couldn't understand how you could backpedal that quick, catch the ball, get your lift and everything and shoot it like that. <laughs> I'm talking about like, like just, just like that. And I was like, I, how did he get that off? How was that a three? How did he not step on the line? First, first of all, <laughs> or anything, first of all, Black, but you, all that hard work. You can't, you know what I'm saying? That's what you can't understand that. Cause you're not a shooter like us, <laughs> Black. That's fine. Like that's why that's the first reason why you can't understand that. But the second reason okay. is all the work okay. and everything he said about his routine. The first reason was like, I know he seemed like he was talking a foreign language. He talked about all this shooting and releasing and legs and everything. You know, he just dunk on people and block shots, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. You know, this ain't uh, what he's talking about, Dre. You know what I'm saying? This is how he do me when it's time to talk about defense and stuff. He can't really have, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We won three-point competitions, me and you. We been won this. <laughs> we got two between two of us. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he mines on the outside of me and on this. One. Well, let's talk about my favorite Ray Allen, the dunking Ray Allen then. Okay. The Ray Allen that used to be dunking on them folks left and right hanging on the rim I'm and all that stuff. Let's talk about that. He did that in Miami when he was the older rest. So which one are you talking about? I'm talking about the, he know them years but I'm talking about it was shit city. I'm talking about everybody yeah, can yeah, get yeah, it I going to the highlights hole. when he was in Milwaukee. He was swinging around <laughs> the rim with his legs. Looked like he riding a yeah, bike. Yeah. <laughs> so which one is your favorite dunk on that you had in your career? Because you got a lot of them and, uh, and you got a lot of good ones. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I snuck a lot of dudes you know, I, I think one of my favorites was the the one against Orlando is the playoffs. Team uh, active. I remember that. Yeah, and and uh Daryl Armstrong was guarding me and you know he got caught behind me and I was all downhill from there. And the interesting thing is is we were down two in the playoffs. This was uh I think it was game three in Orlando, and T Mac fouled me and Ref should have called foul, and then I would have made the free throw, and the game would have, would have been over with. I think we lost and went to overtime, and we lost, and we ended up winning the next game. But, you know, those games, you know, when you think about time and score, time of year, mm-hmm. you know, whether regular season or playoffs, like, that's when it, it seems like it matters more because Ooh. these guys, you see the real – you said a real dude show up. Yeah. Like, the real dude show up. Like, it ain't none of this just shooting balls. and uh, You know, no, I'm talking about a guy that knows how to get a bucket. Mm-hmm. Like, because the three-point ball is great, and, you know, the game is different today. But I still want to see – I want to see these dudes that were, like, craftsmen yeah. at the game. Like, they'd come off a of pick and roll and take a shot, and every time you couldn't stop them. And, and you could do. Come off that curl. <laughs> yeah, mid range game. Like now, we ain't seeing no curling. No curling. Shots. No, none of that. Yeah, we don't see you know mid range shot, pump fake, and get to the middle, and 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 we don't see none of that. Now I'm like, this is the part of the game that I, I like I, I missed because when I first got to league, like it was it was a chore to figure out what each person could do mm-hmm. you know, from a skill set, you know, mm-hmm. and. Nowadays, it just doesn't exist anymore. So when I'm looking back at my career, I'm thinking about, like, I, I love the game in its entirety, to be able to come down the lane and dunk on somebody, to shoot a three, to mm-hmm. shoot a mid-range, to shoot a left-hand layup going underneath the basket. Like, yeah. there's so much more to the game. And I think even the, the coaches are also at, at fault because they preach threes are more than twos, which I get it, but mm-hmm. – I, I hate to see pump faking they step sideways or step backwards yeah. to the three. I'm like, man, 
just get there and get the easy one because the shooting percentages are terrible these days with the three pointers. Yeah, they getting them up. I think that's why I've always and still do. And I'm a big fan of like Melo, DeMar DeRozan, even like KD, Clay. Cause like as much as like you could say KD and Clay shoot threes, but they they get to their sweet spots. And mm-hmm. the rest of them, DeMar, DeMar live. And then Kawhi too. Kawhi, they be trying to talk about like, man, please, he live in the gravy space. That's why <laughs> that's why Toronto won. Exactly. Because yeah. Toronto, you know, every other team, you know, that year was, you know, Houston was doing it, Golden State, uh, Milwaukee, they, they they lived and died by the three. And them dudes were pump faking, getting into the paint, taking that two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Siakam was scoring in the paint. Yeah, he was attacking. Van Vliet was shooting threes, but he was getting to the hole. Yeah, he was attacking. He was creating. Yeah. Uh, what's the other kid? Uh, I can't remember his name. Um, Kyle Lowry. No, not Kyle. Kyle struggled. Norman Powell. Powell. Norman Powell. Powell. He was shooting threes, but he was still getting to that bucket. Yeah. He was getting to that bucket too. When Kyle struggled, he struggled because he was relying on a three pointer. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't getting to a mid range game, which was giving him and an attack. To, yeah, build your rhythm first. Like that's yeah. the biggest thing about offenses. You know, I I know you can shoot a three early, like run off pick and roll and see how they're going to guard it, and then throw a pocket pass or swing it to the, the 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 weak side guard that's rolling and see if you can get that defense shift and you attack it from there, get an easy layup, maybe a foul, go to the free throw line. Like when you can get your offense started like that, it takes so much pressure off the individual players. Uh, let's talk about this mad scientist, Danny Ainge, that created this big three. And not only did they create this big three, y'all got tossed in the shuffle of the Lakers and the Celtics history how is that to be a part of that go through that season i heard y'all training camp was crazy that year once y'all got there y'all had to go overseas just going through that whole year and 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 meeting the lakers with kobe bryant at the end of the year and you know winning that championship just explain us that whole year in that process well being how did you hear about the trade going from seattle to boston well, I was excited because we had uh, got the number two pick. That was a year the Celtics should have got it because they had the worst record. Sonics ended up getting the number two pick, which Portland was going number one when they're going to pick Greg Oden and then KD was number two. KD. So I was like, cool, me, Richard, and, and KD, like, we're on our way. That was the lottery. So then the draft day comes. I'm sitting in the room, and then first pick goes, and all of a sudden I see potential trade. They, they pick Kevin Durant. And then all of a sudden, I see potential trade, and it says Seattle gets, and then it had like seven players, like Delonte West, Wally Zerbiak, Alan mm-hmm. Ray, like two other players. I remember. I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm so gone." <laughs> yeah, when Boston gives up that much, I was like, "I'm out. I'm gone." And I, so I had mixed emotion because I was like, "Damn, you bringing KD in? We about to be yeah doing something special." And and you know, at the time, it's just Paul there, and then then I come. But at the same time, I was excited because I was going back to the East Coast, mm-hmm. you know. So now I'm getting excited. Obviously, we had to sell our house and, and move. People don't understand that part of it. Like you gotta U-haul all this and then move across the country and mm-hmm. find a new home and all this stuff. If your if your kids got good friends, it don't matter. Mm-hmm. No. So before, so in that summer, you know, I was talking to Danny, and the thing that I appreciated most about him was. The man was asking me about different players around the league. Something GMs hadn't done in making moves. Like they'll talk about players, but we want he wants to make another move. And then he tells me that 
he potentially has a deal on the table and he's thinking about bringing Kevin Garnett in and he, what I thought about it. And I was like, uh, that puts us immediately. Hell yeah. <laughs> so it, it happened. And then, you know, we, we, you know, add a couple of different players, James Posey and EJ Brown came in the middle. Pose, uh, you know, though, dog right there. Training camp, we, we, we were playing, we were going to Rome and in, in England that year in London. And it was probably the best thing for us as a team. And mind you, I just had surgery at the end of the season, so I wasn't supposed to go mm -hmm. into training camp. But I had surgery. I come and train. There's no way I wasn't going to training camp. And it was yeah, you cool. catch your shit together for that training. Yeah, camp. <laughs> I mean, we were competing, going hard. It was like I remember seeing y'all on NBA TV. You Ray, I yeah. mean, you Paul and KG sitting over. I'm talking about overseas. Y'all sitting there sipping tea and shit. Y'all getting interviewed. I remember that. Yeah, we used to sit. See, because we were on on East Coast time, so at nighttime. We couldn't go to sleep, so we would be up sitting at the hotel talking. We walked down the street, so it was the best. Like I truly believe, every team. I, you know, when I first got into the league, I thought it was a pain in the in the ass. But when, as I've gotten older, every team should go somewhere for training camp because what happens? You you go home, you're around your family, you don't bond, and the more you're around each other, the more you eat together, the more you you know might bond. Yeah, yeah, like training camp shouldn't be about running suicides and 28s and yeah. and riding stationary bikes. No, it should be about yeah. meshing, like getting together and being around guys and you know, talking philosophy of the game. And yeah, you're gonna you're gonna do some conditioning, but if you're a coach that is only thinking about playing till April, then you know, be my guest, run these guys to the raggedy. But if you plan on playing to June, then it's not about getting in shape right now. Yeah. What you're talking about is so undervalued. That's why it's only very few teams really get what you're saying. That's why UD is still in Miami and he's doing what he's doing because they get it. Right. I'm telling you, like teams do not understand what that brings. You know, you watch TV and you watch some of these shows, you hear like, you don't need to be together to win a championship. Like, I hear you. It's not impossible to win when everybody ain't buddy buddy. But you really? go look back at the teams that really won and them people that mattered, they rocked with each other, bro. They put yeah. that time in. I'm not saying that you can't show me a team that where, oh, this person didn't like that person. They still won. Like, I get it. Yeah, that happens every once in a while. But the majority of teams that win championships, I'm talking about forget basketball, sports across the board. Them boys got a bond. They built a bond somewhere. It came from somewhere. They didn't just like, like, nah, I get it. Sometimes you got talent, assholes can mesh and it can work. But not the majority of the time. The majority of the time, like you said, that shit is built in training camp. That shit is built in times that people don't see. We coming together to eat. We coming together at the end of the night to talk. When we get out of practice, all right, man, I'm going to go get a massage. I'm going to do this. And then we're going to play cards at this time. We're going to eat at this time. It's us. And that's when you really get to find out what this person about, what your teammate about, and how they rock, and y'all make that bond. And, that, and people underestimate, undervalue that, man. That's a huge part of it. And what happens, what happens from that is you build a, a protocol, a safety protocol, so when things do, or if they possibly go sideways, you know how to get that back because if you play cards regularly when you lose yo y'all meet in the room let's play some cards or on mm -hmm. the plane you play cards 
So when you lose, you play cards and you sit there and you hash it out. Like the teams that don't talk and they splinter away, those are the ones that they go home in April. Because they go home and they talk to their best friends and their cousins. And you already know, we all, everybody's sitting here. This is not a, this is not, me trying to talk about people's family and friends it's a it's a it's just how it is they with us yeah i didn't have to tell some of my closest friends closest family hey, hey, hey be cool you don't know what you're talking about because you're not in this locker room and i get it you love and you support and you went me you want me to win but you're wrong right now <laughs> You know, yeah. you're talking about the coach the wrong way. You're talking about my teammates the wrong way. Y'all don't know what's going on. They just speaking out of really love for you and trying to be on your side and console you. And that's not always the right thing. But that's what I appreciated about my shit and our shit, the way we came in. I think that's why when you look at it like me, D-Miles, Corey, Keon, we as solid as it comes to this day because of those like brothers because we all experience the same thing in real time where people experience that on their own. And it's just a difference when, like you say, when you, that's how teams get tight and friendships get bonded because of that stuff. Yeah. When y'all formed the big three, like everybody, it was like y'all already running champs. Everybody wanted <laughs> to beat y'all. They, they kind of figured like y'all was going to go. And, you know, with that, yeah, they formed a big three, but you still got to win it. You know what I'm saying? So, like, teams was coming at y'all head. And, and then, like I said, you get to the end, you get to the Lakers. Just go through that process of that season or that playoffs of playing the teams and uh, y'all gelling and, and they're getting the clicking in the playoffs and y'all really going on their run. The most important thing about that team was we had had success individually, but nothing great team-wise. The only person that had been that won was uh, Pose in, in Miami. Miami, yeah. yeah. So nobody really knew what it took. And so we were willing to sacrifice all year long, less minutes, less shots, but we won. Y'all buy into Doc. We won. And, and Doc wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to beat it out of us either. Like you guys got to work out and be in the best of shape. No, we, we, we did so much. We had such individual pride. Guys were in the gym working out, you know, and that was all the difference. Like he didn't have to, you know, you feel like an independent contractor. Like you just, you know, there's some days, We'd have a game on Monday on the road, and then we wouldn't have practice on Tuesday, and then he would have a shoot-around on Wednesday before the game. So I had a whole day and a half where I didn't have to see nobody. So I could, you know, I'd come in the gym on my own, do whatever I needed to do, but I I was able to to rest. Like, no coach I've ever played with had that much comfort. I never had a training camp as I had when I came out there with Doc. I was like, man, we ain't coming yeah. back. Like, we didn't even do nothing today. Like, that was just a oh, – I never had that. And I was like, man, that's the type of coach I need, especially when I was on these knees. Yeah. <laughs> these knees were giving me problems. It was like, man, that's the type of coach that you need instead of being knees, on a team knees. that's young and he's trying to run you all the way through the dirt. Yeah, you know? like I said, that, that that coach that's trying to do that is an April coach. You know, coaches mm -hmm. that played in June, I, I'm not trying to – tire you out or fatigue you. I don't need you to play your best basketball now. Like, we just need to peak over the course of the season. Tell me this. I want to know what it was like when you were in Boston and you guys achieved that championship. What was that feeling? Because y'all did it in the first year of coming together, and it was expected to be, you know, y'all was going to be this and y'all was going to be that. But, like, how was that feeling to achieve that that goal of a championship? You hadn't been a champion before. You had been in the league and achieved a lot of accomplishments. How was that 
to come together in that first year. And like you say, to go from Seattle thinking, man, we about to get KD, we're going to be all right, we're going to be better, and then get thrown into that scenario and win a championship. Well, I, I was obviously, you know, Sam Presti was the GM then, and he traded me away, and I was, you know, we had a conversation, and he was trying to build, and then he trades me away, so I was like, snake in the grass. But then I ended up in Boston, and we win a championship, so I'm like, you know, I can't be pissed off at him because he put me in a great situation. You know, it's not something that you ever think possible. I never worried about winning the championship because you got to be fortunate to be on a team with players and with an organization yeah. that talk about yeah, like everybody everybody bought in and even during the year they were trying to get better like after we made the initial movement roster wise trade deadline you're trying to get better and then as you know people got way towards in the season we added pj brown and sam Gassell, uh-huh. which proved very beneficial and for us uh, winning the championship so it, it was it, like you don't know like we we went to the playoffs First round, seven games, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. We could not beat Atlanta in Atlanta. That joint mm-hmm. turned into something that we had never seen before. And that, that means might be some of the best basketball that the Hawks have played in that building. Oh, man, they playing y'all hard. <laughs> right. Joe Johnson, Joe, Josh Mills, yep. they playing y'all hard. But it, it was like a crescendo to the playoffs for us because then we go to Cleveland and we win uh, in seven games there. And it took us – like all of it, because LeBron was was doing his thing, and then obviously we went at six and in, in Detroit, and so by the time we get to the Lakers, it almost seemed like the hard work was past us because we had dealt with so much. The, the game on the East in the Eastern Conference was so much more physical, and they picked the Lakers to win. So we came in, we played you know tough nose, hard, gritty basketball, and and it was it was serendipitous. We we were in a, in a position where as long as we, you know, Kobe didn't go off and do do too much craziness, like we were, yeah. we were prime, we were ready. How was it for you, for uh, you know, to see the next generation? You on the team with D Wade, LeBron, Bosh, you know what I'm saying? This is the next generation of, of players. How was it to see them young guys? You know, what I'm saying them guys kind of in their prime, trying to do something great and special over there. It was great because they they truly respected my voice and they deferred to me a lot in a lot of different situations, yeah. asking my opinion. And there was a there was a, a great appreciation for myself for Jawan Howard, and that right there is it allows you to to have a space where you know you're respected and you can come in and do your job. And uh, it, it was a great working environment. Tell me this: I don't like D Miles brought it up earlier, but when you hit that fucking shot. I need to know in real time what that felt like. Cause I'm cause we players, we know how it go, and I know what the fuck I saw. I'm sitting here, they done roped off the sidelines, they bringing, you know, they getting ready. Like in real time, reality is setting. You know, I see the timeout. They so D Way, they show the bench, they show you, LeBron, they show everybody. They showing y'all. It's like y'all have the realization that it's like. This shit about to be over. Like, it could be over. Like, you could see that in everybody's face. It ain't no bull. This is no bullshit. No put. Like, it, everybody could see defeat in the... You could see defeat for y'all. You could see triumph for the Spurs. You see them roping shit off, getting shit ready. you like, damn, this is like... For you to hit that shot 
and to flip the whole course of history, tell me what that was like in real time as it's happening. And like d Miles said, you did it. Like you said, you prepared for these moments and everything, and you got your feet together. Like, aside from that, I get, I didn't listen to you explain how in the moment you got your feet, you didn't practice it to me. After that, the huddle, like after you've made this shot and the re-energize y'all got it, after y'all won that game and to know that you did what you did and this couldn't have been won without you, what is that feeling like? It was interesting because we, you know, when we saw the game slipping away, we turned the ball over late in the game. San Antonio missed some free throws. You know, LeBron hits the three, the first three. Uh, during the game, Mike Miller hit a three with, uh, with one shoe on. Threw it in the crowd, yeah. threw it to the bench. So when you think about the way teams win championships, there's one moment that gets you to the next. Somebody does something that gets you over the hump, you know, play off the bench, you start from five, whatever it may be. And that's kind of how that went. I remember the next day we had we had practice, but what we're going to just do is go into a walkthrough and the media's in there and we're just – you know, gonna shoot around a little bit. We we sit there and play some shooting games, and then we walk off and we you know watch film. And but I was getting treatment in the training room. I had been there early, and I walked into the locker room, and Mike Miller goes, "There he is," and I was stunned because I, in my mind, I thought that I was there. We were there because we all contributed. And Mike says, "Man, bro." We would be in here packing our shit if it weren't for you. And yes, that we see that firsthand, but you all know every little thing transpires into that final moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so missed free throw, a turnover, a block shot, all that gets you to that moment. And it's easy to point the, or shine the light on that, that moment that actually took you over the hump. And that's kind of the way I've always been. Like, you know, everybody did their part to get us here. And obviously that was probably one of the most, glaring moments of that game that got us to where we need to go. I was glad I could be a part of it. If I missed that shot, it wouldn't have been a big deal because everybody would have said, you know, there's no Brian fault, B-Wade fault, blame it on yeah. the guy. Yeah, <laughs> but even me shooting, it was like, there's no way you would have made that shot. That's just, you were in a in a difficult situation. Nobody could make that shot. But, yeah. you know, you show the possibilities when you don't give up. You know, that was, yeah. you know, showing the possibilities of, how a team doesn't give up and, and continue to believe in themselves. If you had five players, well, you had four players to play with out of all the teams that you play with. If you had to pick four players oh, to hop in the rabbit hole with and, and win you a game, no matter what team, what are the four players you would choose? You got some heat because you can play with some, <laughs> some boys. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking Glenn Robinson. Big dog. Yeah. Big dog. Uh, I'm taking Terrell Brandon. Mm, people, people sleep. sleep. They don't even know about TB. <laughs> they don't know about TB. I'm looking for. I'm looking for <laughs> TB right now. Yeah, that man used to get mid range game and split the pick and roll. Ooh, like, like nobody's business. I mean, sheesh. You got the pick of the litter. I know. <laughs> whole lot of whole lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I play with Shaq. It'd be unfair to put Shaq on there, but it's easy to say Shaq. Shaq Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> Shaq Daddy. It's easy to say Shaq. I'm going to say Shaq, and I'm going to say KG. Straight up. 
This is my favorite question. I got a picture right here on the wall of me with a big dumbass chain with everything except my uh, you know, my social security on it. I need to know when you because you signed shit, you signed the biggest deal in Milwaukee Bucks history at the time. When you got that bag, I know you took care of mama. You still take care of mama. I know that. I want to know what Ray Ray did for himself. Like on South Central, Ray Ray doing real, real good. Ray Ray boy, yeah. new, new, new car yeah. for Ray Ray. New house <laughs> Ray Ray. for Ray Ray. Ray Ray doing real good. Like, what did Ray do when he got that big old bag? What did you, I don't want to hear about you taking care of my, I'm talking about what flashy shit did for you yourself. do yourself when you look back like, damn, that was kind of crazy, but I love that <laughs> shit when I did it. Uh, well, for me, and, and uh, Milwaukee helped because you ain't doing nothing super crazy because you know it's how Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, like you can't you can't be flossing in Milwaukee because you gonna have a car sitting on bricks. You yeah. know, too much snow out there. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that I did do is I bought a three sixty spider and I had it mm. in the garage. Him and Corey McGinn. Mm. Yeah. AKA Ferrari L50. <laughs> let me just let you know about that spider though. I had a CL65 that had tear that thing out the frame until we get a little <laughs> further and you get in your top gear. But when we first start off, I'm kicking your ass out the frame. <laughs> Ask Corey McGetty. We was on Lincoln Boulevard coming from the airport. I tow his ass up one day. <laughs> but go ahead. Go ahead. That's why I think you, you you can't go wrong with some of these cars. You can't go like wrong. my wife has a uh a, a BMW i3. Ooh. And they say that thing the from M3, the M3 joint? No, the I3. I3. Oh, the I3. I oh yeah, that shit fast too. They say because it's electric. They say that thing is one of the fastest cars that they have from zero to sixty. And it's electric. Mm-hmm. How was it uh when you heard that you was gonna be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Like how was that for you and your family? You know, it, yeah, it was the Hall of Fame was super, super emotional. Like just thinking about After your whole life. <laughs> yeah, man. It, you you go to all star games, you have fun, you play yeah. the Olympics, you just enjoying yourself. But the Hall of Fame was like it was like, okay, this is over with. I get to sit back and now cry and, and, and celebrate those that helped me get here. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. It's a culmination of your your life and the people in it that pushed the envelope, that fought for you to have tennis shoes on your feet, on clothes, have clothes on your back, a camp to go to. So that's what I wanted to be about was the people that got me. Coaches, teammates, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to make sure that I talked about those people because those people – and, you know, were the ones that, that carried me. And, and, you know, I thought, you know, when I'm announced to the Hall of Fame, I get to uh, put those people out in the forefront. When you came over, they said uh, to Boston, they said there's three Hall of Famers. KG just went in the Hall of Fame the other day, and Paul is has selected to be next year. To see that complete of y'all three Hall of Famers to win that championship, to see Paul get in it next year, how is that for you to see see your guys get in the Hall of Fame and be a part of that that Hall of Fame status. I, I'm just thankful that we won in 08 uh, because you don't want to see that three of us were Hall of Famers. Like, y'all were Hall of Famers? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I went to Championship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to see those those guys, you know, walk in because we know that that was where they were headed. You know, you couldn't ask for uh, anything better because they've been able to be good for a long period of time. It's a glory. All right, man, that's a wrap, man. This is dope. We had Jesus. We had Jesus Showsworth in the building, man. He got game. Ray Allen missed a three-point shot. Sugar Ray, H-O-L. 
big time baller, man. We appreciate you, Ray. Appreciate you pulling up on the homies. I feel like I, I went to school today with y'all. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate y'all for sure. Right? Yes, sir, man. All love, big dog. Continue support of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give us two taps by writing a review and rating five stars wherever you get your podcast. And make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can also find all the episodes on the Players Tribune YouTube page. Follow us on social media at Knuckleheads Podcast and join our Knuckleheads Facebook group for exclusive content. Thanks again to all of our guests and fans. This wouldn't be possible without y'all. theplayerstribute.com.